Tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus and our contributors at patreon.com. Two weeks ago, we introduced you to the infamous Chicago ghost, Resurrection Mary, an apparition known to haunt Archer Road on the southwest side of town. She's been seen by countless witnesses and even picked up by others, only to discover that she would disappear from their cars before they got to where she wanted to go. One man even danced an entire evening with her at a local ballroom in 1939, eventually offering her a ride home, only to have her request that instead he take her out Archer to Resurrection Cemetery, where she vanished into thin air as she ran across the street toward the gates. Gates that for years bore handprints burnt into bent metal bars as though something were trying desperately to get out, or perhaps back in. Resurrection Mary would seem to fit the mold of a well-worn urban legend known to most as the Vanishing Hitchhiker. But what if the story here is bigger than that? We believe there's more to this than what's convenient to accept, and tonight we're going to take you further into the darkness. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. And I didn't see a face. It was just like black there. She had no face. Mark Rudnicki, eyewitness, in an exclusive interview from tonight's episode. Join us tonight for part two of our series on Resurrection Mary. And we're back. Hey, folks, thanks for coming back. And thank you for continuing to support our sponsors. It helps us keep providing this show for free. For those of you who don't follow us on social media, which is completely understandable given recent current events. Oh, what are those? Well, never, never, you know, never, never mind. Yeah, okay. Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, blah, blah, blah. I see. Yeah, they know your underwear size. Anyway, <laughs> we actually posted just a few days ago on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter about a great visit we had with the actor, producer, and photographer Carl Striken, whom you may remember as our guest in our series on Giants. The tall ones. We had him on because he is a giant. To jog your memory, he's the seven-foot-tall giant character that appears in the original Twin Peaks series from 1990 to 91, and then later in the more recent Showtime iteration, Twin Peaks The Return. And this time we learn he might be known as the fireman. And I say might because, you know, David Lynch doesn't like to tell you anything for sure about anything. <laughs> yeah. uh, he also appeared as Lurch in the Adams Family, Mr. Hom in Star Trek The Next Generation, and the Archillian in Men in Black, to name just a few of his performances. We wanted to get him a hat for being on our show, and it turns out our hats just don't come in a large enough size. So we ordered two of his favorite hats from a company that he knew carried big hats, and then sent them to our merch guy in Ohio, Craig, who managed to get them embroidered with astonishing Al, that's the character name of our logo. That, yeah, that, that, that <laughs> that people have come up with. Yeah. No, yeah, someone uh, came up with it. I think uh, our, our longtime listener Ari Bray came up oh, with that. Because yeah, yeah, I asked yeah, him to do some photographs. We're going to be releasing more of those soon. Of a actual human skull. Okay, it's not actual. Oh, geez. but with a headset on it. He Don't took some really cool. Pictures. Yes, it is cool. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anyway, it took a few weeks to get all that hat stuff executed, but once we got them in hand. 
we offered to take them out to Carl since he lives only about 45 minutes from where we're recording here in Blanket Fortiana, and he had us to his house to drop them off. Well, needless to say, it was a great time. He's such a generous and kind and just a fascinating guy to talk with. We really just sat around on his couch and talked about art and architecture and uh, while we were getting the hats out. And he's so knowledgeable and just overall friendly. It, it was such a great time. I wish we had more time to just kind of just sit around and, and chat. I know. We had so many great books. We were looking through. He had a bunch of Tashin books on architecture as well as some other ones on photography. And we had a blast uh, sitting there and going through them. I, I will note that his house it, it does not have a lot of unusually large furniture. <laughs> no, no. Well, people have asked, is like, well, are all the doorways Well, taller? I asked him that. Yeah. I actually asked him that when you and Ed, Ed's our uh, photographer who came to take a picture of yes. us. I asked him that when you and Ed were outside. I was yeah. Did you raise all these doorways? Because I noticed one was kind of high. And he, uh-huh. goes, and he said, uh, you know what? I don't do that because if I do, I get used to That's it. That's right. And then when I go somewhere else, I will hit my head super hard. And I was like, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I never thought about that. It yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So the, the only thing I did notice was that his um, kitchen table where he, I guess, prepares his food in the morning. Yeah. And he has a little dinette in the kitchen table. That kitchen table was easily four and a half feet tall. Yeah, you don't want to bang your knees every time you're having a bowl of cereal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, we'd just like to thank him again for not only coming on the show, but also being so gracious about it and welcoming us into his home. In fact, my son was with us, and once Carl heard that he was a Men in Black fan, which it was so funny because he... My son was shy. He he leaned into my ear. He's like, tell him I like men in black. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah. I, so I said, hey, you know, my son's a real fan of men in black. And he went down, took us out to his studio and yeah. dug out a publicity shot of him as the Archillian and autographed it for my boy. So yeah, I, that, that was, was very cool and generous. He didn't have to really do that. sweet. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to ask for anything like that, but he was very kind to do that. And uh, here's the funny thing about the Archillian, which you might forget in Men in Black. The Archillian is actually a teeny tiny little like two-inch alien, <laughs> and right. Carl's body is yeah. just like a disguise. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think of it as like Pacific Rim, right? Yeah. yeah you may, yeah. It's a little alien little driving there. Carl, you know, but it, and I saw some publicity shots so crazy of him like on the slab in the morgue and yes. all that stuff. Yeah. It was cool. No, anyway. no. He's got to uh, do some really interesting things in his life, and he's uh, very open and willing to talk about it. So thanks again, Carl. And if you want to take a look at us, all uh, three of us, <laughs> me, uh, actually all four of us. Yeah, because so my Carl, son's in right, the picture. Right, so yeah. Carl, myself, Scott, and his son, just take a look at our Instagram or Facebook page or Twitter, too. Yeah. What about Tumblr? No, we, oh, we've here. stopped maintaining Tumblr. It's well, still there. Because <laughs> I just got but... really into it. So we oh, well, good. You can take over the <laughs> okay. Tumblr site. Maybe we'll do that. It's <laughs> not there, but everywhere else we're on social media. Look for that picture and uh, you can see Carl. Yeah, and by the way, in that picture, if you look at me, I'm 6'2". For reference, right, I'm six yeah. two, so that'll give you an idea of how big everybody is. Anyway. And I'm a paltry five nine. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, toying with the idea of having Carl hold me like a baby. Yeah, <laughs> I a think he could have done it. Uh, no, I looks like I'm his son. Yeah, whereas, uh, you know, Scott's there with his son. Yeah, my, not quite that uh, differential. But well, my yes. son's hair is like below his belt line. I think. <laughs> And he's uh, he's about to turn nine, so... We look forward to seeing Carl on screens big and bigger in the near future. For our last quick reminder, we'll be in Kent, Ohio for the Kent Paranormal Weekend on April 28th and 29th. And there's a full day of great stuff on the 28th, including us going on stage at the Kent stage for about 50 minutes at 5 p.m. on Saturday night. Wait, did you... Yeah, we we're, we're really doing that. We need to come up with a oh, presentation, geez. and we need a real one this time. I it can't be about your dirty clothes like <laughs> well, the last one you did. <laughs> that uh, hey, that, that bought us a lot of time, and people seem to enjoy it. it well, did, I just wish did. you'd run this by me. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Uh, anyway, I'm agreeing us to all kinds of stuff. No, so. it's very cool. But there's going to be a presentation about the shows that have quote, and this is really Scott's quote here. 
move the needle of belief for both of us since we started Astonishing Legends. Yeah. I, I have a hunch that Scott's needle has moved more than mine. Your needle's not going down any, is it? No, it's it's just flickering ghost-like. Right. Yeah, but definitely Scott's been on a journey, which if I you have. listen to our I'm shows, still on it. I'm still on it. I can't wait to see where this ends up. Well, anyway, there are some wonderful folks from the paranormal entertainment world lined up and researchers and authors and all that, including Jim Harold. Talk about the podfather. Yeah. That guy's it. So, I can't wait to meet him. And some other uh, notable names that you've heard of. And there's also a ghost hunt on Saturday night that yes. we will be participating in too. So if you can get there, bring your ectoplasm Petri dishes. And also that, what's that device that the Ghostbusters had? Uh, the ghost meter? No, the thing that captured the, uh, you know. Oh, the trap. The, there you go. Yes, yeah, the trap. The ghost trap. <laughs> bring one of those. You, you know what? Come in handy. Ghosts I'm okay with. It's demons that I don't personally care for. We're not doing a demon hunt, right? Because uh, no. I'll, I'll be in my trailer. <laughs> <laughs> We're not, but we'll try and get something attached to you. How's uh, that? No, I'm definitely not down with that. But okay. I, you know, I don't mind a little spooky ghosts in the theater, I guess. I guess the theater must be haunted. That's what they say. Yeah. So uh, A lot of theaters are haunted. That is a common thing. And There's one at my alma mater, University of North Carolina at Greensboro. The building there is the basement where all the props are, which is creepy on its own, is supposedly uh, horrifically haunted. So. Well, it's funny you mention that because one of the authors we're going to be talking about later and quoting from uh, one of his articles, Michael Clean, mm -hmm. uh, has a book called Ghost Lore of Illinois Colleges and Universities. Oh, nice. So I can't wait to talk about that. Not about that book specifically, but he talks a lot about uh, Resurrection Mary and has some real interesting insights oh. and uh, passages about the gate. Uh, the front gate there. So it's all connected. It is, but that is a, a common running thing. Any th place that has a lot of human activity, and we've said this before, it's, it's a common thing known, uh, I guess, throughout uh, paranormalia. Is that Whoa. I just made something up? Yeah, just deal you with really it. went just far on that one. Neologisms. <laughs> uh, Tess loves it. That's why I do it. Okay. But any place that has had high emotion, even drama, so stages, theaters, hospitals, routes, churches, heavily traveled routes. Exactly. So that's going to come Hotels. up in tonight's uh, discussion because there are some uh, famous Chicago streets here known for. A lot of activity. There you go. Some great, like dancing, and uh, and some not so great. By the way, for those of you that have been worried, my arm is doing much better. I mean, for a long time, I couldn't raise it above my head or move it behind my back at all, but now it's so much better. I'm just thrilled to be out of pain and sleeping again, and I feel like it was because... Update. Chicago, Illinois. We interrupt this podcast with important new information on a story, Unsolved Mysteries, covered back in 1994, about a Chicago ghost known as Resurrection Mary. In that episode, we shared the story of eyewitness Mark Rudnicki, who was driving down Archer Road in southwest Chicago late one night in the fall of 1979. In the car with him was his girlfriend, his sister, and her husband. They were on their way home when they saw a glowing, ghostly apparition walking alone by the side of the road. Astonishing Legends was able to track down Mr. Rudnicki, and he agreed to an exclusive new interview to tell his part of the story that was left on the cutting room floor of Unsolved Mysteries. For every mystery, there is someone, somewhere, who knows the truth. Perhaps that someone is listening. Perhaps it's you. Okay, so we are here with Mark Rudnicki. Am I saying your name right, sir? 
Yes, you are. Okay. I can't believe that. I got it right. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. Yeah. Um, and Mark is one of the original eyewitnesses from Unsolved Mysteries on the story about Resurrection Mary. And uh, we wanted to get him on the show to talk a little bit about that experience. I have, I guess, a few questions for you. But I guess we should start out, Mark, with what you remember about that night. I know it was a long time ago, but uh, what can you tell me about what actually happened that night that you had that experience? Well, I had gone out with my sister, brother-in-law, and my girlfriend at the time, who later turned out to be my wife. We were driving southbound on Archer Avenue or Archer Road. Uh, We were very near Resurrection Cemetery. It was... uh, around midnight, maybe one o'clock at night. And it was very dark at that time. There was minimal street lights, And all of a sudden we were in a Camaro, which had front bucket seats. I was driving. My girlfriend, I just felt her like pawing at my arm. And I could tell she was slunk down in her seat and I couldn't tell, you know, she didn't say anything. And then two to three seconds after, you know, I felt her pawing at my arm. My sister yells out from the back seat, Resurrection Mary, Resurrection Mary. <laughs> so, of course, you know, I was looking at the road at the time. So it was dark and I really couldn't see. So I look up and off to my right, there was a glow. And as we got closer to her, you could tell it was a girl. She had a long cream colored dress on. You know, she had blonde hair, shoulder length. And the only thing I really remember other than her walking so smoothly in the area where she was at, it was a rough grassy area, but you couldn't see any feet or any movements in her legs, but she was kind of like floating along the road. And then as we passed her, I looked back at her and I didn't see a face. There was just like a black, it was just like black there. Like she had no face. And then we drove, I don't know, maybe quarter to a half mile down the road, turned around, and another car whipped around with us. And this other driver, he came up alongside us and he was ghost white, basically. You know, he was freaking out. He was by himself. We didn't roll down the windows to speak or anything, but he was just, you could tell by the expression, you know, something had happened there. And by the time we had gotten back, you know, she was gone. Wow. Yeah. This is so much better than the way Unsolved Mysteries portrayed it. <laughs> this is even, there's so much more to it. There, so there was another eyewitness in another car, somebody you didn't know, and you guys both turned around. Yes. Wow. We both turned around, and by the time we got back to that area, she was gone. He was in the car by himself. You know, he pulled up next to us. You could tell he was shaken. And my girlfriend, she slept with her mother for three weeks you know, oh. after that happened. So how you old know? were you guys? What year was this again? This was 79. 79. 79. What were your rough ages? How old were you? How old was your girlfriend at the time? I was 22. Uh-huh. We were both 22 at the time. And uh, my sister is early 30s. Oh, gosh, I have so many questions. Uh, it's just amazing. Um, yes, the way. <laughs> okay, let's start out. I mean, where were you guys headed that night? Do you remember what you were doing out on? And also, here's a question. I was curious, do the locals call it Archer Avenue or Archer Road or both? Well, actually, there's both. 
Archer Road is where the cemetery is, and then Archer Avenue is, after you go a couple miles north, it turns towards Chicago, and that's where they call it Archer Avenue. Okay, that's good to know. And do you remember where you guys were headed? Were you going out uh, to dance or clubs or whatever, or what what kind of things were you... (laughs) Actually, we had spent the uh, early part of the evening at the racetrack, because my sister had never been there. Okay. And then after that, we went to a uh, pizza place in Brookfield that is no longer there. Uh My sister lives in Hickory Hills. Uh, which is south of Resurrection Cemetery. So we were going down Archer Road when we saw her. Ah, wow. So you went a little ways on, and you decided to turn around. Was everybody wanting to turn around and check it out, or were you the... (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Yeah. My brother-in-law, he didn't believe it was her, for one thing. Uh You know, he's a skeptic, or he was a skeptic, you know, and my girlfriend was saying, no, 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 no. And my sister was kind of like me. She wanted to see what, what it was. So we went back. Okay. By the time we got back, she was gone. <laughs> wow. All right. When you went by, who was driving? I was. You were driving. So when you went by, you looked back over your shoulder, and that's when you saw that this apparition didn't seem to have, not only didn't have a face, in spite of the fact that it was glowing, but it had kind of a void where its face should be. Correct. And you described her as floating along, not really taking steps, but just kind of floating down the side of the road. Exactly. How close to the shoulder was she? I'd say maybe 10 to 15 feet. Okay, so she's not like right up on the road. She's she's off to the side kind of floating along. Right, because that section of road where she was at, there was no sidewalk. There was uh, maybe a three-foot gravel shoulder, Uh and then there was like a grassy area after that. And so she was down in the grassy area. Actually, the grass kind of took like a slope up. Okay. It wasn't a slope down. Okay. Uh, Okay, I understand. Uh The weird thing about it was, thinking back about it, I didn't see any hands either. Okay. So, you know, I didn't notice any movement other than her moving forward. You know, I didn't see any arm swing or any leg movement. It was just weird. What's your personal life experience outside of this with this kind of thing? Have you ever seen anything prior to that or since then? (laughs) Have you? (laughs) I have not. You know, this was my one experience. You know, I don't, I guess I believe in ghosts, but other than this one encounter, I've not had any other encounters. So I can't say that I'm, uh, I'm a disbeliever. I'm not really a believer, I guess, until I have another experience. But did this change your point of view when this happened? Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, in my uh, my girlfriend from back then, you know, she totally believed that we saw a ghost, that it was Resurrection Mary. And my sister does, too. Yeah. So have you and your sister, have you talked? How often do you talk about the incident? I mean, I guess it's old news now, huh? Right. <laughs> yeah. Actually, after uh, Claire, who was turning to my wife was uh, after we did Unsolved Mysteries. Prior to that, we were also on a local radio show on Chicago. I have a tape of that somewhere, but I was trying to look for it in the last couple of days, but I can't locate it. Which show were you on? You know, to be honest, I don't remember the name. Was it uh, Supernatural Chicago? Was it Eddie Schwartz? To be honest, I don't remember. Okay. I know it was a late night on a Saturday. I feel like that might have been him. Do you remember if it was WGN? Uh so many years ago. Yeah, honest, no, that's okay. Remember. The only reason I ask is because we played a clip from a show that WGN actually allowed us to use, which I was surprised, of a guy named Eddie Schwartz who's since passed away. On a show was called Supernatural Chicago, and he had the guest he had was Richard T. Crow, and I don't know if you know him. 
Yes, I do. Okay, so he was on there talking about Resurrection Mary. What do you remember about Richard Crow? Well, this happened to us on a Saturday night, and my girlfriend's sister had gone on a ghost tour with Richard Crow within the last few weeks prior to that. Okay. And so when we, she found out about it, she was like, oh, you have to call Richard. You have to call Richard. And so we called him that Sunday night, and he came to my girlfriend's house that following Monday. And he said he was surprised that we had contacted him so quickly after the event because he says usually it's several months and then somebody will contact him and say, oh, we saw her or whatever. But through Richard Crow is how we actually got onto the radio program. Okay. And Richard was a guest that night as well, I believe. Uh, yeah, I feel like that probably was the Eddie Schwartz show. It's funny. You know what? I can reach out to WGN directly because since I has to add, had to ask them for permission to use that other clip, I may be able to find that episode. Did that radio appearance lead to your appearance on Unsolved Mysteries, or how, how did that come about? <laughs> Actually, through Richard Crow again. Ah. Uh, Richard was trying to line up people that he knew who had seen Resurrection Mary for Unsolved Mysteries, because Richard was kind of leading the charge for that episode. I believe he may have actually contacted Unsolved Mysteries to try and get that episode going. Uh, when Richard was alive, he had a... Uh, ghost tour business in Chicago Sure, that he would lead busloads of people and take them around the city, past Resurrection Cemetery, out towards Maple Lake, you know, different sites. And then he would also take them to different haunted bars and that in Chicago. I guess that whole area, people claim a lot of weird stuff happens. From what I understand, the Justice Police Department, whenever there's a uh, commercial being shot about the upcoming Halloween holidays and that. Yeah. Uh, the Justice Police Department gets a lot of sightings of ghosts and things like that. Uh-huh. And I believe they said that uh, the weekend we saw Resurrection Mary, they were shooting a commercial for an upcoming Halloween show in the area. And that's what they say when, you know, she's brought into things, she appears more often. Oh, that's so. interesting. Well, so what do you think the likelihood was that you guys were mistaken. What do you say to that? If someone were to ask you that, uh, I would say I saw <laughs> what I saw. I'm a hundred percent sure that it was an aberration, but because by the time we turned around so quickly and got back, no one could have run away because there was no place for anybody to hide or run to. Okay. And there was no way for anyone to generate that amount of light. Okay. That I saw. So it really was putting out a lot of light. Yes. Uh-huh. That's fascinating. So what was the feeling that you had internally during this experience? Was it fear? What, what was going through your mind and body? I was in a state of awe, basically. I wasn't sure what happened at first. And then, you know, it all happened so quickly. But my girlfriend at the time, Claire, she had fear. I mean, you know, she was panic-stricken. Uh-huh. You know, she was telling me, don't turn around, don't turn around. But, you know, my sister said, go back, go back. <laughs> so I went back and uh, it all happens just so quickly. Yeah. You know, I would say I, w- I was in, uh, in awe. I was not afraid of anything. I was more curious of a curious mindset. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about you. Do you still live in the area? I actually live in Chicago, uh-huh. closer to downtown Chicago, about okay. three miles due west of downtown. Okay. Uh, my sister still lives in the same house that we were driving back to. And I go out to visit her 
probably once a month or so. We talk on the phone just about every day. Sure. I do drive past the area, but typically I'm with my wife and you know, I know that she doesn't like to appear to ladies, uh-huh. <laughs> but usually we, when we're traveling down that road, it's usually light out. I know there have been spottings of her during the day, but I guess I'm going to have to go back when it's 11, 1130 at night one night and <laughs> just cruise the road. To see yeah. Out. We'll get one of those dash cams if you do. <laughs> I'm kind of a car guy. So here's the most important question. Where is that Camaro? You still got it? <laughs> No, unfortunately, uh, after I had a couple of kids, uh, Camaro didn't turn out to be a practical vehicle with, uh, <laughs> with children, so we had to get rid of it. Oh, no. What, what color was it? It was silver. Nice. Silver gray. Nice. <laughs> what, so what do you do? What do you do now? I am a director of IT development. Oh, cool. I work at a flooring wholesaler, actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My company has been in the business of buying other flooring dealers around the country over the last year, year and a half. So we're growing by leaps and bounds. Oh, wow. Oh, well, that sounds yeah. like a good gig. Yeah. Keeping me busy. That's great. <laughs> good. Well, have you had any other experiences like that at any other uh, establishments there? Because uh, the reason is we started looking into this. You know, a few people had sent us emails saying like, well, you should check into the Ashbury Coffee House. That's haunted. Or the O. Henry uh, Roadhouse, which is now uh, the Irish legend. That's haunted. Seems like every place on that Archer Triangle, it was the uh, phrase I was going for before, is haunted. And then somebody wrote into us saying that the Argonne National Laboratory out in the woods there was a spooky place that the kids would dare each other because it was a lot like Stranger Things where weird experiments were going on possibly and it was a, a spooky place to go. So I was just wondering if you had any kind of other uh, experiences or heard of any stories or legends yourself growing up as a kid around there. Actually, the, growing up as a kid, the only legend I really heard of was Resurrection Mary. Wow. You know, there's several bars in the downtown Chicago area on Division Street in that area that are... People have felt cold winds and, you know, things like that. I've eaten many places along Archer Avenue, Archer Road. Yeah. I've not had any other encounters. (laughs) Have you heard about the gates and the handprints on the gates at the cemetery? Yes. What's your take on that story? Those bars have since been removed by uh, the archdiocese (laughs) Uh because uh, everyone would, would try to go see them in that. Part of that legend I find that hard to believe, you know, that uh, a ghost would do that, yeah. but I don't know. That's, that's a little hard for me to believe. I believe somebody came, you know, by with some uh, acid on some gloves one night and did that. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Well, what was your experience like with Unsolved Mysteries? What was that like, shooting that segment and everything? I actually, that was, <laughs> they actually took us to the Willowbrook Ballroom. Really? And uh, we actually, Yes. You know, we were talking to the director. The director was asking us the questions off camera, you know, so we didn't, uh, you know, meet any of the stars of the show or anything. Uh-huh. It took an hour and a half to shoot our segment, <laughs> which uh, basically wound up on the cutting room floor other yeah. than, you know, our 10 to 15 seconds of fame there. Yeah. The one thing I remember about that shooting was, you know, they would stop the shooting and have to put the, more powder on my head because I was reflecting into the camera. <laughs> 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 oh boy, the glamorous Hollywood life there. <laughs> yeah. Do people reach out to you like I did or try to and ask you if you're the same guy or is, is that is it quieted down for you? Actually, my sister who lives in Florida, I guess the episode has aired down there over the last couple of years. Uh-huh. And 
my sister gets the question, oh, is that your brother? And uh, so, you know, that's the only question I get about it. I think uh, what's interesting to me is the fact that you guys both had the same experience, because a lot of times when there, even when there's multiple eyewitnesses to something that both think they've seen something, the experience is different. But what you're saying is the experience that you and your sister had was pretty much exactly the same. Yes. Okay. Do you feel like Unsolved Mysteries kept their portrayal of the Resurrection Mary story overall pretty accurate, or do you feel like they embellished some here and there? What's your take on that production? versus the story you know it was very close the actors you know could have looked a little better but (laughs) uh, other than that (laughs) they did get the the overall story that they told was accurate yeah yeah and okay So. so that's what i wanted to know Mark, I just honestly, I cannot thank you enough. I think a good four or five days passed between the time I sent you that anonymous message asking if you were the same guy. And when you wrote back, and I think you said, this is your lucky day. I was <laughs> really, I was thrilled. Yeah, was we thrilled. both were. Yeah. You know, so I, I just want to yeah. thank you so much for coming on our show. And if you find that tape, I'm going to reach out to WGN and see if they can track that episode down. And if I do, I'll let you know. If you can find that tape, let us know. And you can rest assured that your segment will be much longer on our show than it was on Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> oh boy, 20 seconds. <laughs> we make a point of trying to find original witnesses to things because uh, we feel like that's the best way to uh, convey to our listeners what actually happened. Forrest and I both, we see something like an Unsolved Mysteries or we hear somebody such as yourself possibly on another show or something, there's always a bunch of questions that we want to ask and didn't get to. So I'm thrilled that we got to ask you the questions we wanted to ask you. Yeah, I'm glad you could. I'm glad we have this chance to talk. Yeah. yeah. And I did start to listen to your first episode on Resurrection Mary. Oh, great. I only got about halfway through it. (laughs) Yeah, our Uh, show's really long. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Well, actually, I'm driving down to Florida next week. So I I plan on listening to finishing your episode and uh, whatever other episodes I can get of yours. Oh, well, thank you. Thank (laughs) you so much, because rarely, again, do you hear uh, the original story or original, you know, uh, sighting from the actual person. And so that's always a treat for the listeners. Yeah. They they hear it directly from the source. We feel very fortunate to have uh, talked to you. So thank you again. You're welcome, Scott. All right. talking to you and Flores. All right. All right. Take (laughs) care. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Chris Perez, and this is Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. So how much fun was that, talking to Mark Rodnicki? I loved hearing a firsthand account of it. Yeah, it's really cool, and that's what we were saying. We always try to get somebody, if you can, if it's a story that's several hundred years old, you can't do that. But <laughs> but in this case, this story is, it's gone on for a while, and it's still going on, but it's so great to talk to someone who actually saw something. Right. And I think back in the heyday of most of the sightings, this is the hot time. She's right behind you. (laughs) Well, (laughs) she's very nice. That's the thing I love. Yeah, she's not appearing in the mirror behind you to drag you to hell. Yeah. She seems to be very benevolent. Uh, What's interesting, though, is that this is right in the prime spot, I think, of the flap, you would call it, of, of sightings. Yes. But they still seem to go on to this day. Yeah. There were a lot of details with Mark's story that I loved hearing. You know, he said... He talked to Unsolved Mysteries for like an hour and a half, yeah. right? And then they yeah. use like 11 seconds. Well, that's <laughs> that's every television and movie production. Yeah. You know, most and of it, it ends up on the floor. Claire Lopez Rudnicki, who was in the interview with him or whatever, she he, they're not together anymore. So, right. And I think she got more screen time than he did. But they were all in the car together. 
along with yeah. his sister, right. who he just said they, they still talk about it yeah. uh, and have still talked about it, and she still lives in the house they were headed to that night because yeah. they were actually, I think, going to take her and her husband home. Right. And, yeah, I think they, uh, they'd had pizza earlier. Yeah. And they're on their way home. And what's good about this sighting is that there's four witnesses in the, car. the same car. Yeah. But it follows also the rules of Mary and that there are men present in the car. Usually, you know, as we explained in part one, rarely is it just a woman sighting her. There is that one case of the woman driving the Mustang, the 65 Mustang, who saw a body by the side of the road. Yeah. But when Mary interacts with you, most all the accounts have a man present. Yeah. But not all of them. No, no, but, but that's lot, the but majority. Them, yeah. yeah, so that's yes. kind of the MO of Mary is that usually there's a man present, or if it's in mixed company, there are also men there. So it's rare that she will get into a car, though, with just women. Yeah, and the other story from that same Unsolved Mysteries episode, which there was two women in the car. Yeah. Where they thought they ran into her or ran over her. Right. But she didn't get in the car, and they didn't hear an impact or anything. They just... They saw her go in front, no, as, which as, is, and right. slammed on the brakes. Yeah, exactly. So as we explained before, it's like part of the uh, uh, elements of the other sightings is that sometimes she gets in the car, sometimes she's just seen by the side of the road. That seems to be very prevalent. Sometimes the car accidentally hits her because she runs out in front of a car, yeah. and people hear a thud. Yeah. Or, yeah, sometimes or they hear it, and sometimes they sometimes don't. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes yeah. she passes ghostly through the whole car as they're driving through, Matrix style, Yeah, Matrix Part 2. Yeah. It's a lot of variation here, but generally the image of her remains fairly consistent. Well, one of my favorite things about Mark's story and what I loved about hearing it, and you can see why Unsolved Mysteries, they're doing all these different segments and they only have a little bit of time, which is what we love about podcasting. We get to, <laughs> if the story's interesting, yeah. we get to keep it all. Right. And what I thought was really interesting about Mark's story that you didn't hear in the Unsolved Mysteries episode was the fact that there was this other witness in this other car. I love that because there, yeah. that changes the whole dimension of it. It's not just the four people in this one car, like you've got family and friends or whatever, when you start to think about, oh, is this true? Is it, are they making it up? Is it mass hysteria? Right. It's, when you put that other car in the equation that he talks about, that they turned around in the other car, turned around as well. Yeah. You've got this guy in the other car who he said was, you know, white as a sheet. Yeah. And I love just that connection of they're looking at each other, but they didn't roll down the windows and talk to each other. It reminded me a lot of close encounters when they <laughs> right. all the people are like yeah. chasing the UFOs together. And yeah. it's like, doesn't matter whether you're a cop or civilian or whatever. It's like, we got to follow this thing. Yeah. So they turn around. It's uh, one of those things where you get confirmation, even when you're with a group and you turn to the person next to you and say, did you see that? Yeah. I did see that. Or they don't want Are wanna... you seeing this? Yeah. Are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing? There's someone in an, in an entirely different car who's seeing it, uh, whose face is white as uh, Mary. The other thing that's interesting about Mark's story, and again, details that I wish had made it into uh, Unsolved Mysteries, was the fact that he he was like, as I recall, and he may not have said it to Unsolved Mysteries, and maybe that's why it wasn't in there, because he was recalling it as he was talking to us in yeah. our interview. He doesn't really remember any arms or legs, right? Yeah, well, that's what he saw, is floating. When you have a, a hoaxer, for example, yeah, yeah. they're going to have legs. They're going to have Well, if to arms. move around, to be ambulatory, you need to move your legs. And yeah, so and you're going to look here, like you're walking. You're not yeah. going to be... That's an elaborate hoax because you're, I mean, sure, you can make it look that way. You yeah. can make anything look anyway. Maybe they got a glow-in-the-dark <laughs> dress and then they are wearing black pants. Right, right. But then on top of that, they're kind of floating, which means you're going to have to put down a track or something. There's just right. so many things that would go into, like, if you were going to hoax this, maybe now, sure, a little bit easier, I think, yeah. than back then. But then for them to go back and not see anything, it's right. really interesting. And for me, Mark's account is very convincing. We talked to him for uh, a good while, and he's just one of those stand-up kind of guys. Yeah. 
doesn't seem like he's uh, putting anything on or pulling your leg. And for this long of a time to be keeping that up. No, well, he's uh, labored in relative obscurity until we came <laughs> along and plucked him out from the history of television. Right. No, yeah. uh, seriously. Mark, again, thank you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And again, also the other thing I love, and they did talk about this on Unsolved Mysteries originally, was the there was no face. And that is really, that's well, creepy. that's part of one of the several elements to this story, to uh, to Mark's story, that are common that I've seen uh, and read about in other accounts with other ghosts. Sometimes there's no face. There's another girl by the side of the road story like that with no face that I'm hoping to get to maybe in part three. Yeah. And then there's things like the no legs, because unless you're wearing a hoop skirt, you're in a dancing gown or ball gown, you're going to see legs move. And the floating, again, is another often described kind of thing, especially with ghosts coming downstairs. It just, yeah. It's just very classic that they all saw this kind of same thing and, and uh, were freaked out by it. But also, I, I believe no hands, or he didn't really, they didn't it's, really he notice. He said no arms. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah he right. said no arms, so right. no arms, probably no hands. Yeah. <laughs> Unless, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's just a very strange kind of apparition, but again, people have caught things on camera even. There's a great photo of, a uh, very strange one, of a dance recital on stage, and it's a dancer doing a twirl, and you don't see her legs. Right. Again, if you're going to fake that, it's a pretty interesting item to not include in the faked photo. Uh, yeah. Who knows what you're seeing and how much of it. Uh, from the other side, are you seeing? But the no face thing to me, it's like, it's kind of blank. It's like a blank. It could be filled in with something else or yeah, there's a reason was, that there's no features. Dark. It yeah. Was, uh, like a, a void. void. Right, right. Yeah. So that's very interesting. I, you know, the main thing about his story, the main thing for me was that it made me want to go cruising around in a Camaro in <laughs> Chicago and get some good deep dish pizza. Yeah. <laughs> it sounded to me like they were having otherwise a pretty awesome night. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, throughout all this research, that's the one thing that I... <laughs> It's made me very hungry for good Chicago food. So yes. I even tweeted out to uh, Mr. Joe Mantegna, the actor and uh, proprietor, along with his wife, of a establishment here in Burbank, Taste Chicago. Yeah, which it's is about two miles Chicago from here. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. All the great classics. He's brought that Taste of Chicago out to the valley here in Los Angeles. Yeah. And, it's, uh, and I've been to Chicago several times to some great places like Lou Malnati's and the, uh, with a deep dish. And anyway, yeah. Chicago has a real distinct vibe to it, like a lot of great American cities. And part of this cultural heritage of theirs is this ghost story and a bunch of them in this very specific area. Yeah. And man, to have been uh, cruising around in a Camaro in the late 70s to uh, the mid 80s to the late 80s, that was a very specific place in time. And it sticks out in Mark's memory as being very vivid and ours as well. We were around in those days. And so I can kind of picture that uh, quite clearly, just that kind of night. You're out cruising with your friends or your your siblings in this case. Not we me. All this. No, you weren't. I, I was 10. <laughs> But I do remember it pretty clearly. Yeah, yeah. You know what else I can tell you about 1979? Music was amazing. Yes. That was a yeah. great time. That was Call Me and... Oh, that's right. You know, there was Blondie and Sniffing the Tears and uh, just uh, the Ramones. So much great music at that time. So well, anyway, uh, to pizza, make... music, Camaros, what can go wrong? Exactly. Oh, right, a ghost with no face. <laughs> well, it was... <laughs> Again, it's a very well-known and much-beloved story for people in the Chicago area, but specifically the Southwest side. Yeah. And we did get some great listener feedback so far. Yeah, we've gotten a bunch of emails one. already. Yeah, with people who are very familiar with the area, grew up there, or have studied it and know a lot about it. And uh, we want to get to that because they make some great points that they bring up about the area that uh, some of them we were going to get to uh, later, but some we had not heard of. Yeah. So one of the first ones we got was from a listener named 
Dan S., and he wrote to us with some great points about the entire area and the general uh, Resurrection Mary story. Yeah, he grew up right there. He did, um, yeah. Right, he says, uh, in the suburb of Burr Ridge, which is right on the edge of what he calls Haunted Archer Avenue. He's under the impression that the whole area near the Des Plaines River is a hotbed for general paranormal activity. Yeah. The picture that was slowly building in our minds was that there's a lot going on here. Again, you get letters from uh, locals, and it's like, yep, you're right. <laughs> there's a lot going on there, which is why we call it the Archer Triangle of hauntedness. Yeah. Hauntedness? Is that a word? It is now. Oh, okay. okay. There we go. Another <laughs> neologism. Neologism. Yeah, I'm going to have a few here. <laughs> Not so sure just, that's a word. Bear with me here. But Dan goes on to say, I wanted to share some lesser known anecdotes for this area that might add to your hypothesis that Archer Road is super haunted. Right near my old subdivision, there was an abandoned home near the site of the murder of the Grimes sisters near County Line Road and German Church Road. This is a pretty amazing story. The Grimes sisters, that's a famous, famous unsolved crime that took place in Chicago. Well, it might be Chicago's most famous and one of its most gruesome unsolved murders. Yeah, the basic setup for this is just after Christmas, 1956, Patricia and Barbara Grimes, who were 13 and 15, had uh, left their house to go out and see the Elvis movie, Love Me Tender. For the 11th time. Yeah, they were huge fans of Elvis, and this was 11th time. That's more times. I think I saw Star Wars in the theater maybe (laughs) nine times, so they're beating me there. But the sad news is they actually never came home that night, and it was a full 25 days, almost a month, before their naked, frozen bodies were found just off a street known as German Church Road. And they had been callously dropped just over the guardrail within a few feet of a precipice leading into what at the time was known as Devil's Creek. Now, the interesting thing about German Church Road is it's just across the Des Plaines River and only a few miles from Resurrection Cemetery and Archer. This whole area, and we're going to talk about the region a little bit later on here, it's one of the few residential uh, areas or or collection of uh, small towns and suburbs that is diagonally situated along the river. So that's what's actually determining the layout is that the Des Plaines right there runs kind of southwest to northeast. Yes. Adam Seltzer, who's coming on the show later in this episode, talks about the origin of those roads. The ones that don't run on the grid system are pretty much all Native American trails. Exactly. So there's a lot of water here. We're going to get to that uh, element too about the whole area because it may have something to do with the increased occurrences of paranormal activity. And this one, I think Devil's Creek is now called Flag Creek. Okay. I'm looking at the map here at German Church Road and where I believe kind of where they found the girls along the bank there was Devil's Creek at that time. So I'm not sure that's, uh, we didn't have time to really get into it. It just kind of occurred to me right now. I'm looking at the map that I don't see a Devil's Creek, so after that horrible incident, maybe the name was changed. And then the other thing that's crazy about the Grimes story is that the girls, after they went missing, they were seen all over town in multiple places by lots of witnesses, right? Yeah, this is one thing that makes this story particularly chilling and eerie and possibly paranormal, is that they were sighted multiple times. Yeah. I mean, this was a big case, and even Elvis himself chimed in by issuing a statement from Graceland as a plea for the girls to come home because their mother, Loretta Grimes, was extremely worried, but there was no answer to that. But we have to get to the creepiest thing about the Grimes sisters. Yeah. That's the phone calls. Did you read about that? Yes. Know, by the way, we're getting uh, uh, this information from a great website that we are constantly referring to. It's called Prairie Ghosts. 
dot com p-a-r-i-r-i-e ghosts.com right by troy taylor I yes believe, author and paranormal investigator we've referenced him quite a bit in part one yes uh so really just it's just a wealth of information this uh website of his and we'll have the, a link to uh the grime story that as he has it on his website but what's fascinating about this i'm going to read this directly from his page how can we explain the two telephone calls that were received by wallace and ann tolston on January 14th. This is January 14th. This is a long time after, right? But not quite. They were still missing at this point. Their daughter, Sandra, was a classmate of Patricia Grimes at the St. Maurice School, and they received these two calls around midnight. The first call jolted Mr. Tolston out of his sleep, but when he picked up the receiver, the person on the other end of the line did not speak. He waited a few moments, and then he hung up. About 15 minutes later, the phone rang again, and this time Ann Tolston answered it, the mother. The voice on the other end of the line asked, Is that you, Sandra? Is Sandra there? But before Mrs. Tolston could bring her daughter to the phone, the caller had clicked off the line. Ann Tolston was convinced that the frightened voice on the telephone had belonged to Patricia Grimes. So the thing that's freaky about this is, There is a a general presumption when their bodies were found that they had been dead pretty much since the night they vanished. This would have been a couple of weeks after they were dead that these phone calls came in. Yeah. There's a couple of other elements to this story that I did want to quickly touch on, which actually come from another website, hauntdetective.com, which Mm -hmm. is Chicago's Haunt Detective. I guess they do uh, tours and stuff like that as well. One of the things that they talk about on their site with regard to this is the uh, an abandoned house, and there's all kinds of lore about this house. Supposedly, it was abandoned pretty close to the day or the day after the girls' bodies were found, and it had dishes in the sink, a brand new car in the garage, there were children's toys, all this just left behind, and food on the table even. Hmm. There's just all kinds of stories about why it was abandoned. Maybe it was squatters that were in a house that was unoccupied, maybe it was... The perpetrator. Here's the other thing, though. Besides the abandoned house, which I guess it became a rite of passage to go visit this house for kids in Chicago, there was also a ghost car. And the reason that we want to talk about this is because in part three, we're going to have a story from a friend of the show about a ghost car. That's pretty fascinating, although it's a different kind of thing. But the story is that you could theoretically hear this car going to the area where the Grimes girls' bodies were found and pulling over at night and someone opening a door and then opening a trunk and hastily slamming the trunk and driving away. But you never see anybody. You just hear it. So there's a lot of aspects to that. And this is all taking place out on German Church Road. And we're just, you know, a hop, skip, and a jump from Archer and all the other stuff. We're just on the other side of the uh, Des Plaines River. Yeah, actually, if you take uh, from Archer, if you head northwest on Willow Springs Road, it connects up with German Church Road just across the river. Yeah. So the point that we're making about this story, and that Dan was as well, is that there's a lot of bad historical mojo associated with the area Not all of it tragic other than regular people passing away or uh, possibly uh, people on the road getting hit by cars and your standard accidents is that this is a really horrific crime that concluded very close to the Willowbrook Ballroom and Banquets facility, which is in actually Willow Springs. We want to make that mention as well. It's not in Willowbrook, which is another town, is the name of another town, which is also kind of confusing. But Yeah, we might have made an error on that in part yeah, one. Yeah, we may, may have misspoke about that in part one, but just to be clear, the Willowbrook Ballroom is in Willow Springs. And so not if, Willowbrook. 
And the Willow Springs Ballroom is in Willow, but no, I'm kidding. Right, yeah, There's a, but it's close by, so uh, everyone can kind of understand the confusion there. It's also not there anymore, period, because it burned down in It is, yes. Yeah. Exactly. So here, what I would wonder is, is this area causing something ghostly to happen? Well, that's not the only story that takes place out that way, right? Is there something that you mentioned in part one, actually, and that I've read about in some of our research was the Ashbury Coffee House also. So I may have been joking about it in part one, but as I started to look at some of the businesses along Archer Road on Google Maps, I started to wonder, is every place haunted yeah. <laughs> on, this, on this road? But then Dan confirmed it by saying that another haunted building is the Ashbury Coffee House on Archer Avenue. A great vibe. A lot of eclectic people go there, but the vibe does seem a little strange because it's, it's a very old building. Right along with a lot of other ones along this street. And another thing that Dan mentioned, I'll, I'll mention briefly here, is that uh, during the satanic panic years of the uh, the late 70s and early 80s, there were tons of stories about hauntings, satanic cult activity, all coming from this area here. And it, he also confirms what you were saying earlier was a teenage rite of passage during this time to go to the site of the creek and where the bodies were found in the middle of the night just to see what happened. Yeah. Again, that's part of a local legend and urban lore here that is definitely part of this Archer Triangle. But here's a little background on the Ashbury Coffee House. It is at 8695 Archer Avenue in Willow Springs. And... Of course, if you if you look that up and uh, Google the name, you'll get that uh, there have been some paranormal investigations done there. And one of them was by Edward Shanahan. And we're going to mention him later because he also did one at the O. Henry Roadhouse with some interesting uh, conclusions, can we say? So, right. Just to remind people what that is, the O. Henry Roadhouse is now the Irish... The Irish legend. Irish uh, legend. Yeah. And it is across the street from where the Willowbrook Ballroom used to stand uh, right. before it burned down in 2016. And it's still there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, But in this case, Edward Shanahan, who could be described as a spiritual observer or medium, a kind of a psychic reader, describes the Ashbury Coffee House as, you know, very nice, a very warm, welcoming feeling, and has great people running it. But there are also four spirits that uh, dwell there that other mediums have picked up on. And the sense that they get is uh, it's a husband, wife, and two children. And they are not happy. Yeah, it's interesting. And he had done some research and, and talked about how in 1896, there was a home and a hotel on the property. So that yeah. comes back to our whole thing about hotels. In addition to that, there were some stores back in the day. So what's interesting about this is that, again, it's on Archer. And as we indicated in part one, we're going to talk a little bit more about, and uh, even Adam mentions, who's the author we're having on later, that Archer is an old Native American trade route and traveling route. And right, that's right. where that street is, as well as, and you'll hear him talk about, many other of what he called the diagonal streets in Chicago. Yes, exactly. So we can go all the way back to the first habitation of Native Americans in the area. And for white Europeans, at least the mid to late 19th century, and that's another interesting thing about the ghost that uh, I believe it was Kathy, who was one of the, the mediums at the Ashbury Coffee House that uh, Edward Shanahan was uh, interacting with. And she's the one who described the four spirits. And But people have seen this ghostly family, and they look like they're wearing clothes from the 1800s. 
Right. So that's creepy enough. But it's there's a lot of activity upstairs. You can go see pictures of it. Uh, you just Google it online. But anyway, so there you go. That's a coffee house that uh, you're getting uh, more than just a really good latte. Well, let's talk about this one was a surprise to me. As much as we've been digging, this falls under the category of really enlightening things that we find out from listeners, which is what I love now when people email us stuff. Uh, we actually hadn't come across this. And that is the presence of a Stranger Things styled lab Yeah, uh, right in the area. Yeah, right? Pretty dead on. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing that Dan had mentioned. And I'd, I'd heard of the name, but I wasn't making too much of a connection so far. But Dan goes on to say the Argonne National Laboratory is a bit out of the way from the cemetery. But when you look at it on a map, you can see that the whole region is a giant haunted forest <laughs> preserve in Cook County. And a lot of the activity that he grew up hearing about centers around these woods. And the reason that he brings this up is because it's a site where the Manhattan Project was worked on. And as a kid, uh, the entrance of the lab was in the middle of these creepy woods, and we were always told this is highly top secret. And here's the other thing about the woods. This came from uh, Tim S. He wrote in and said, uh, it has the burial site of the first nuclear reactor, Chicago Pile 1. Yeah, you want to explain uh, just what that means? Well, it was buried there, I guess, in 1949, uh, which is just 10 years after Jerry Palis's Mary sighting. But is interesting, contributing more to the activity along Archer. Here's a Wikipedia entry about Chicago Pile 1, or CP1. It was the world's first nuclear reactor, and this is from Wikipedia. On December 2nd, 1942, the first human-made self-sustaining nuclear chain reaction was initiated in CP1 during an experiment led by... Enrico Fermi. Ah, the Fermi paradox. Yes. Isn't it all connected? It is all connected. The reactor's development was part of the Manhattan Project, as Forrest just said, the Allied effort to create atomic bombs during World War II. It was built by the Metallurgical Laboratory at the University of Chicago under the west viewing stands of the original Stagg Field. Fermi described the apparatus as, quote, a crude pile of black bricks and wooden timbers. Yeah, well, that goes to describe the pile part. Yes. <laughs> and again, more top secret stuff. And as our other listener, Dan, uh, said, he, he always jokes with people that he grew up in a literal Stranger Things town <laughs> with a top secret laboratory placed in a geographic paranormal hotspot similar to Montauk, New York. But he says he's always had this weird, weird feeling over there in that area. And I think it adds to the conclusions you've drawn on in past shows that phenomena like this are actually tied to the land. Yeah. So there you go. Really interesting uh, email from Dan. Thank you very much for that. And it points out uh, some things that, again, were on the fringes of our radar, but weren't making a real connection with. But certainly as a local, you do. Because the lab that Dan is talking about is a real place, and it really is top secret. And this is another quick description from Wikipedia. The Argonne National Laboratory is a science and engineering research national laboratory operated by the University of Chicago Argonne, LLC, for the United States Department of Energy, located near Lamont, Illinois, outside Chicago. It is the largest national laboratory by size and scope in the Midwest. And the entry goes on to describe it as in the post-war era, the lab focused primarily on non-weapon-related nuclear physics, designing and building the first power-producing nuclear reactors, helping design the reactors used by the U.S.'s nuclear navy, and a wide variety of similar projects that we know of. doesn't say that, I just put that in there. Uh, In 1994, the lab's nuclear mission ended, and today it maintains a broad portfolio in basic science research, energy storage, and renewable energy, environmental sustainability, supercomputing, 
and national security. So a very mysterious place, probably just doing uh, what it says here, but who knows? Maybe there's a portal to the underworld. Well, you know, this just what this reminds me of is of that energy site along the Ohio River near yeah. Point Pleasant, where right. the Mothman was sighted and where they were transporting nuclear material covertly along the rail lines there right. in and out of that facility. Again, it's along a river. You know, we talked about ley lines. That'll come up again, which is, you know, a lot of people consider it a pseudoscientific concept, but you can't help but see, especially when you do a show like ours, as long as we've been doing it now, or as many, I should say, because we haven't been doing it that long. Three years is not a long time, but 100 episodes is a lot of episodes. <laughs> yeah. And I will say that you do start to see patterns in this stuff. The more that we explore it, the more you start to realize, it's like, well, what's going on here? Is there something outside just the idea of these ghost stories and these urban legends? It's like, why is this all centered around this area that's along this river? It's along Native American trails and trade routes or transportation routes, which, by the way, were probably trails that were used like it goes, we don't know how far it goes back. It could go back tens of thousands of years. Yeah, So exactly. the idea of this route that's heavily traveled and continues to be heavily traveled to this day is really fascinating. And then when you take this national lab and the development of nuclear power, it's right around there. The fact that this reactor is buried there, there's just a, a lot of odd things going on. Well, I'd be curious to know, uh, we always talk about this phenomenon, and we've heard it from others who study this field, is that there's also usually a lot of other types of weird, high strangeness and paranormal activity. So I wonder if there's UFO stuff or even a, you know, a glowing Bigfoot yeah. type stuff going on or beasts of some kind roaming around in the woods there. But you mentioned ley lines, which is another thing that uh, another listener, Tim, had brought up in an email to us, and uh, he gives kind of an explanation. So do you want to uh, read what he said here? Yeah, what Tim was talking about here was he said the idea comes from a Brit named Alfred Watkins, who I actually have looked up before. Mm -hmm. And ley lines are tracks that cover a countryside. Where they intersect is called a nodal point, N-O-D-A-L. Some folks believe that those nodal points are at sacred sites and therefore have a lot of extraordinary phenomena, and the pass in between can harbor the energy. Archer Avenue would be considered a ley line. Mm -hmm. You know what else is a ley line? Just on the other side of the river from Archer, running almost parallel to it, Route 66. Oh, yeah. Route 66 in that part of Chicago travels down what was known as the Pontiac Trail. Listen to this excerpt from a website called turtletalk.wordpress.com. This is from an entry written by Joyce M. Clark. It was posted on January 10th, 2008 on this website. Waterways were not the only means by which Native Americans traveled. According to michiganhighways.org, Native Americans also established footpaths connecting various settlements, hunting areas, and fishing locations. In the Milford area, Chippewa helped establish what was later termed the Grand River Trail, which is just one of several Indian trails, in quotes, to crisscross the Lower Peninsula. This is about Michigan, but bear with me here. This trail evolved into Grand River Avenue. Pontiac Trail is an old Indian trail connecting Pontiac to Saline and White Lake Road is an old Indian trail as well. So what's happening here is these trails are becoming roads that we're still traveling to this day, and in some cases it's even the historic Route 66. Oh, that's right, yeah. And so it's amazing how, again, all this stuff comes back together. And when you think about how long human beings have been marching down Archer Avenue, yeah. and you think about all these other things that are going on and, and all the people that stopped along the way looking for food or shelter or the stores or businesses that sprang up along that route because that's where you go. That's where right. the business is going to be. It's a lot of lives focused on an area over many hundreds, if not thousands of years. Well, I have heard this from other 
paranormal authors and uh, a few mediums that you actually can beat a path of energy. And I mean, like, beat a path in the woods. Yeah. Of just travel, of, like, imagine, like, just taking a piece of paper and making a crease and just, you keep creasing it, creasing it. You're establishing a pathway of energy. If you go down that road of believing all that stuff. So another thing that you mentioned here, as far as travel, is water. Because the ancient Native peoples, that's how you travel, uh, especially long distances. It's the ease of travel, is using water. Or you cut a path through the woods. But this gets back to Tim's email, because item number four he lists here. Water. Willow Springs is surrounded by bodies of water, and the stretch of Archer that goes from the Willowbrook Ballroom to the St. James of the Sag, also super haunted, in parentheses, runs parallel with the I&M Canal and Des Plaines River. There is also Maple Lake that is a few meters away from Archer that also has a ton of reports of paranormal activity. Maple Lake, we're going to hear about that from yes, exactly. Adam Selzer. He brought that up as well. Yeah, so he, he concludes, if you believe that paranormal activity feeds off of water, there is plenty. Yeah. So there is something there. Even if you look at crop circles, they say one factor has to do with the water tables under the ground in a kind of an aquifer scenario that that has something to do with where crop circles are found. So water, you know, it's most of our planet. It may have something to do with all of this activity. And if you look at this uh, Archer Triangle, as Tim says, it's got plenty of it. So another thing he talks about with the canal, which is interesting, is that it was a popular dumping ground for car insurance scammers and bodies from mob hits. Oh, well, yeah. So That's kind of like here, the uh, the Angeles Crest National Forest supposedly has dozens upon dozens of bodies in it from, when, when you got to get rid of somebody, that's where you go. Well, it takes a while to find them. Plus a lot of guys uh, who ride their high-speed bikes and go over the side and don't get found for a while. Yeah. That occasionally happens. Yeah. But there are other haunted things in the immediate area that Tim points out. St. James of the Sag. Right, which is another cemetery. Right. And there are reports of ghost carriages. Some people report that the ground looks like it's breathing, which yeah. is creepy. And the appearance of ghost monks, which was initially, I believe, reported on, at least in the media, by Richard Crow, local Chicago famous ghost hunter. Yes. Uh, we talked was, about a good deal in part one and played that audio clip from the show he was guesting on uh, Eddie Schwartz's show, Supernatural Chicago from WGN way back in the day. So the last few things that Tim also mentions, as well as Dan, is the disappearance of the Grimes sisters and the Irish legend, which is across the street from the ballroom, as we're going to discuss here shortly, being an old speakeasy with a haunted basement and attic. Yeah, because speakeasies tend to have conflict, and sometimes people go in and don't come <laughs> well, out. <it's, laughs> yeah, a lot of drinking and some criminal activity, and the two uh, often go together and not always well. That's us just touching on, courtesy of some of our Chicago listeners, some of the other stories around that area that have to do with the lab, the nuclear reactor, the other haunted buildings and cemeteries and establishments along Archer and across the river from Archer, just in that general, the Archer Triangle. It's very fascinating, and it paints a, a fuller picture of why it might be that so many people are seeing these apparitions along that road, connected not only to Resurrection Mary but to, uh, or Resurrection Cemetery, but connected to other cemeteries in the area and other structures having a whole lot of history that involves uh, death. 
I'm not afraid to admit it, but we're a little cautious when it comes to covering conspiracy theories. <laughs> well, you got to be careful in how you approach the subject because people get very invested in their own hypotheses and the discussions can get very contentious. You don't want to kick that can of hornet worms. I think you're mixing your metaphors there, but, oh. uh, but one show that's not afraid to dive headfirst into the world of conspiracy theories is a new one from the Parcast Network called, you guessed it, Conspiracy Theories. With each new episode coming out every Wednesday, the hosts of Conspiracy Theories explain to you the intricate and complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and possible cover-ups. The Conspiracy Theories team of researchers delve deep and investigate the official versions of these popular mysteries, and with solid investigation supporting them, the hosts expose the possible secrets behind the party line and tell you what they believe is the real truth. Because as they say, the truth isn't always the best story, and the official story isn't always the truth. Ain't that the truth? And just listen to some of the topics they'll cover. The death of Princess Diana, the Illuminati, Kim Trails, and that old chestnut, Area 51. All right, I'm there. And you know what? It's probably better that they get a visit from the men in black because neither of us really likes solicitors at our door. So visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Conspiracy Theories. Again, that's C-O-N-S-P-I-R-A-C-Y. T-H-E-O-R-I-E-S. Or visit parcast.com slash conspiracy to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash conspiracy to listen now. Hello, everyone. I'm Mrs. Sawbones, and you're listening to the Astonishing Legends podcast. Here at Astonishing Legends, our listeners mean the world to us. In fact... If we only had two dead rats, we'd give you one. Thank you for listening. Now, let's return to the show. So let's learn a little bit about this whole area, which is anchored on historic Archer Avenue. Because here we have Resurrection Cemetery, the Willowbrook Ballroom, and many other historic Chicago businesses and landmarks. And they all seem to be bordered by the equally historic Archer Avenue, which runs somewhat parallel to the Des Plaines River in a southwest to northeast direction. And you add to this the haunted German Church Road around where the Grimes sisters' bodies were found. And again, which you can get to from Archer Road by taking a northwest route along Willow Springs Road and crossing the river there. And it starts to seem like this whole area has a very long history of bad mojo. Uh, so what is it about this street that seems to be generating so much paranormal activity? Well, let's now take a look at the early history of Archer Avenue and see if there are any clues as to why it seems like such a haunted stretch of road. Yeah, this is pretty fascinating. Tess found this amazing PDF called Preservation Chicago, Chicago's Seven Most Threatened Buildings, 2007. This is from the website preservationchicago.org. And it's pretty interesting. Uh, traveling down Archer Avenue is like taking a trip back to the golden age of an early Chicago commercial district. The oldest part is Bridgeport, a neighborhood with its own distinct identity that hosts a mix of architectural styles. To this day, the architecture of the late 1800s remains, even though some of it is in disrepair. Archer Avenue was once a planked-over roadway along the route of an old Indian trail called the Road to Willow Browns. This route saw a sudden burst of activity when construction of the Illinois and Michigan Canal was begun in the 1830s. You've heard us mention that earlier, the I&M Canal. Right, yeah. A new town was formed named Bridgeport, the only part of Chicago 
that is diagonally oriented, which is mm -hmm. uh, something Forrest pointed out earlier. There might have something to do with the ley lines, uh, geometry, the uh, sacred geometry, the natural geography of the place. Yeah. There you go. That's interesting. It continued to boom in the 1840s with many Irish and German immigrants arriving. The immigrants worked on the canal construction as well as in the stockyards that lined the South Branch prior to the creation of the Union stockyards. Archer Avenue, we mentioned this briefly in part one, was actually named in honor of Colonel William Archer, who was one of the three original I&M Canal commissioners overseeing its construction. Archer Avenue thrived over the next several decades with nearby lumber yards, steel mills, and the new Union stockyards as key places of employment. There's a lot more here. We'll give you a link to this PDF. But one of the things that we were talking about is human activity and how strong it appeared to be in the area. In the, in the 1880s and 1890s, when the largest of the surviving buildings were constructed, the street featured union halls, boot stores, funeral parlors, livery businesses, grocery stores, bakeries, and everything else to serve a booming residential community. At the western end of the stretch, the billowing smoke from steelmaking at the union rolling mills laid a shadow across the neighborhood. So, like we said, there's a lot going on here. This is a very industrial and important area for the city of Chicago, and it has been historically even prior to the arrival of settlers who, of course, pushed the Native Americans out. Yeah, it's a main drag, yeah. uh, if you will. Uh, that is southwest of the major hub of Chicago, but its own booming little area with its own industry. So a lively street with a lot of businesses and everything you need for daily life at that time, like right before the turn of the 19th century. Which is likely history repeating itself, because if it's been a major artery or any road that's been a major artery, those are the kinds of businesses you're going to find on those arteries throughout different cultures and times and different settlers being in the area. Well, let's take a look at the most famous piece of land there, I would say, <laughs> along Archer Avenue, and that would be Resurrection Cemetery, 7201 Archer Avenue, Justice, Illinois, 60458. There you go. And, and the full name is Resurrection Catholic Cemetery and Mausoleums. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing place. Well, this very large cemetery is southwest of downtown Chicago, north of adjacent Bethania Cemetery. Or it's Bethania. I'm going to go with Bethania. I'm sorry, I couldn't find any YouTube clips. Uh, I know, I'm still waiting for news. emails about Desplaines, because it doesn't look like Desplaines. Well, that me, I looked up. That, that the, no, the local newscasters do say Desplaines. That's how we always figure out how to pronounce things, folks. <laughs> well, we figured, look for local newscasts. I think we mentioned in part one, we didn't get any comments then. Yeah. I'm sure someone would have said something. But, well, it's uh, not Des Moines, Iowa, is it? Continuing on. Look at that. That's a uh, tangent, folks. We, uh, we've stopped doing this Well, he so much. just could not help himself. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's located in the suburb of Justice, Illinois, or I guess it's Resurrection Cemetery. Yeah, exactly. It's 4.7 miles north of Fairmont Cemetery in Willow Springs, Illinois, which is also very, very haunted. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, what cemetery isn't? It's got its own ghosts and its own ghost stories. But Resurrection Cemetery is a hot spot, it seems, for Chicago's Southwest Siders. That's what they call themselves. Uh, the suburb has been a heavily Polish Catholic community for at least half a century, and more than just a few Marys have been laid to rest there. Lots of ladies named Mary, and also a lot of people that are connected 
to this story in a very notable way. Well, Jerry Palis is there, the yeah. man who danced with her in 1939. And Richard T. Crow. Richard T. Crow, the ghost hunter and ghost tour guide and the guy who's probably most single-handedly responsible for really making Resurrection Mary a famous international story. Yeah. That's going to be him. Well, uh, and he's in there. Out, yeah, well, he's, uh, he with ended, his family. He ended up there, but he was one of the first, maybe in the nation, to give bus-guided ghost tours. Yeah, so uh, cool. Yeah, and especially for the Chicago area. And he wasn't the first one to tell these stories. He was collecting them. He was a folklorist. Yes. So as his job, he was collecting these stories, but he was the first one to kind of put them out to the public, to more than just the bars and restaurants where these were discussed, and make it known. So he will go down to Chicago history forever as one of the major factors of uh, the ghostly business of uh, Chicago's haunts. He also had an amazing voice. He had he a great radio voice. voice. Yeah. yeah, so we have that clip there. It's, it's hard to tell who's the DJ. Yeah, <laughs> he's kind of upstaging them a little bit, I think. And here's somebody else who's in there. You're ready for this, especially in this episode when we opened with uh, Not Robert Stack. Uh, one of <laughs> that was very, very far away from me. no, it was very well done. Oh, first. I thought that was that's oh. maybe your best impression. <laughs> Is uh, the second host of Unsolved Mysteries, yeah, when it launched again, they repackaged some of the older stories, did some newer ones, and that particular run of the series was hosted by Dennis Farina, who that's you right. may recognize from a billion mob movies and oh, yeah. everything else, just a, an amazing actor. Guess what? Resurrection Cemetery is where you will find Mr. Farina <laughs> at go. this point. And All, by that, I mean uh, yeah. not wandering around. I mean he's passed no, away. No, no, yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, to get back to describing what the cemetery is like, I found a good passage from Dale Kaczmarek. Now, he was mentioned in part one of uh, our Resurrection Mary series here uh, because he is, uh, I think, a really good writer. He's really encapsulated a lot of great information here. Uh, he is from Ghost Research Society. Yeah, he's uh, a major is, figure there, right? Yeah, yeah. ghostresearch.org is the website. And again, it's one of those great sites you always hope to come across that has a wealth of information. But he's got a lot of great stuff, a, a great huge page on the whole Resurrection Mary story as well as the cemetery. Yeah, he points out that it's actually 540 acres, one of the largest cemeteries in North America. It's shaped like a triangle, which I feel like that's something everybody knows already, but that's only because we've been staring at maps. But an isosceles triangle. An isosceles triangle. <laughs> yeah, here he comes says. some sacred math in there. Yeah, yeah. It has 152,000 graves, not including 5,300 crypts in the mausoleum. And the mausoleum is a very special place itself, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Area residents apparently have nicknamed it the Resurrection Triangle due uh -huh. to all the strange events that have taken place. It was consecrated in 1904, opened officially in 1912, and it is, as you might imagine, a Roman Catholic burial ground maintained and operated by the Catholic Archdiocese. It was named in commemoration of the feast celebrating the resurrection of Christ which, again, in a case of everything's connected and for some reason the shows we do coming out weirdly on these serendipitous dates, what happened between part one and part two of our series on Resurrection Mary? Yeah, uh, Good Friday and Easter. Right. Yeah, so there was very close uh, around that. So that's uh, thematically tied in. Happy Resurrection. <laughs> there, there, it's a little there you go. belated, but hey. And one interesting thing about a monument that's in there called the Resurrection of Christ it's one that's situated adjacent to the cemetery's chapel. It's a large gray stone figure that is said to be a favorite of the ghost 
of Resurrection Mary. Yeah, she's purportedly been seen dancing in front of it, Yes, right? there have been reports of Mary dancing at the foot of this monument on several occasions. There you go. She likes it. Yeah. Well, the cemetery itself is about 3.7 miles from the Willowbrook Ballroom. Or where uh, it used to be. Yes, exactly. Or as it used to be, an eight-minute drive. Or take you 37 minutes to walk. So in the dead of winter, it's a long, cold walk. Even for a ghost, probably. Right. So you may, if we're talking about the cemetery, you may have remembered that in part one, I was mentioning how I thought term graves were kind of a crazy idea. Right. But they still do this, apparently. And I guess, I mean, I I understand. I don't mean to be, um, I feel a little bit. Insensitive? Yeah, insensitive to folks who have a hard time affording a decent plot, you know? Well, it happens. It's a solution for if you want to get somebody buried somewhere where you can actually visit them and and it makes sense. And then later, Maybe they get moved. But we got this email, <laughs> which I, I particularly enjoyed. So many, I just want to say thank you, Chicago. I love how many listeners we have from Chicago. Yeah, uh, yeah. Usually we get responses after series are completed, but uh, this one, they just started rolling in right after part one. And it's just awesome to have everyone reaching out to us with these great stories. So listen to this email from uh, Demetra. I didn't ask permission to say her name, so I'm not going to say her last name. I'm going to say Demetra R. right now. She said, uh, hi there, just listening to the Resurrection Mary episode, part one. Scott was saying he didn't think term graves are a thing. Well, back in 1992, my parents, who live on Long Island, had a friend that passed away suddenly. The deceased's wife had to buy a burial plot. The plot was three times more expensive because it was not bought in advance. Uh, that seems a little wrong. But anyway, he th- yeah. and I don't mean wrong factually, just wrong ethically. But I'm, no. I'm going to yeah, well, let that go right now. Buy ahead. That's, yeah. Uh, that's um, the better plan. Who thinks about buying burial plots, you say? My mother, always looking to save, decided to buy a double plot for her and my father behind his back. She paid $900 in comparison to her friend's 3500 What a deal, right? When she finally told my father about her investment, in quotes, I took a good look at the paperwork. It was a 99-year lease. It doesn't have an option for any extensions, and there is also no information. The big joke I have with my parents, who are still both living, is that they're running out of time on their leased burials. My mother finds the entire thing hilarious, mostly because she said, I won't care once I'm dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's, this is, by the way, this yeah. is like such a great Chicago email. I love it. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Uh, well, you know. that, that's the attitude of <laughs> once you get older, folks, it's yeah. like, I don't care. It's your problem. I'm yeah. your problem I'll now. I'll be dead. Yeah. I'm, I'm off to better things. You yeah. got to worry about me now. Or you're going to stick me. <laughs> uh, but that is an interesting point with relation to Mary and finding out possibly who the real Mary was, which a lot of people have tried to do. Yeah. Because if something's been moved or a headstone's been moved, how do you know which Mary it is? Are you going to do your poltergeist quote? Or? No. Okay, good. Uh, we've done it. Well, how many times? That's 100 episodes. That quote's been said uh, probably 47 times. Yeah, I don't do Craig T. Nelson. But uh, you can imagine it's a great part of the movie because it, it is kind of scary. Yeah. And again, do you, do you wonder if the dead uh, worry about that kind of thing? if they worry about anything at all. Well, there's certainly no shortage of stories that we've come across over the years about buildings and homes and all kinds of things being built on burial grounds, which I'm just going to go ahead and repeat is a bad idea. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, here's another thing about uh, finding out which Mary it is, that the cemetery itself has some information about it, but they don't divulge it to people poking around out of respect for the families. Or they may not know because... (laughs) We certainly get stories around here in Southern California of mishaps and misburials, bodies being misplaced, all that kind of stuff. Naturally, when there isn't a bunch of lore around the decedent. So 
it can happen. So basically, I think at this point, maybe virtually impossible to find anybody who fits one example of that. But as we mentioned in part one, maybe there are multiple, several examples of restless spirits, shall we say. So speaking of restless spirits, one interesting aspect of the story of the cemetery itself is that the mausoleum is, of course, reportedly haunted. Yeah. But it's a grand place. Just listen to some of these descriptors, again, from Dale Kazmerich of the Ghost Research Society, describing the Resurrection Mausoleum. It's listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as having the largest stained glass windows of any mausoleum in the world. The windows measure 22,381 square feet in 2,488 panels, completed in 1971. And, again, also very haunted. <laughs> She's supposedly been sighted dancing in there, right? Around there, yeah. But this uh, is, and we also mentioned in part one, the guy that spent the night there, right, in bad weather. Oh, well, we're going to get to that in a second here, yeah. because that's also listed as a rebuttal to some of these things. Yeah. But, yeah, she is seen dancing, again, around the monument around the mausoleum she's seen floating around. I just want to quickly say, we have pictures of it posted with this episode. It truly is amazing. It's a beautiful building. Yeah, it's yeah. quite something to look at, you know, just on its own. Well, uh, here are some strange things that have happened, again, according to Dale Kazmarek, that have been reported. On October 10th, 1979, there was a massive blackout in and along Archer Avenue, but only in the town of Justice. Commonwealth Edison and the police were riding around in the cemetery, shining their lights into the mausoleum because it was determined that the blackout was centered at the mausoleum in the middle of the night. Ooh. Yeah, try to make that sound spooky. You uh, did. That was good. Very good. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Taped organ music, alarm systems, and lights go on and off by themselves for no explainable reason. There's reports by construction workers building the structure that the large religious statues would always be found in a different location when crews arrived the next day for work. So it could be some form of teleportation was taking place there. Mm. But here's the rebuttal. <laughs> well, so, but, uh, yeah. but before oh, you go on, I yeah. just want to remind everyone there are 5,300 crypts in it. 5,300. So when it comes to power outages and turning lights on and off and moving stuff around, there are a lot of potential suspects. <laughs> There's a it's lot. It's not uh, just Mary. No, that's what I'm saying. You get a collective kind of uh, ball of spirits. Yes. Uh, or just a large uh, energy force. What you got here is your spirit ball. Hey, getting back to poltergeist. Yeah. It's uh, not just one thing. Yeah. It's a bunch of unhappy uh, and happy spirits, you know, but you got a lot of energy there. If you believe in the afterlife and the spirit world. If you believe in If you don't, then all. it's just a, uh, then it's a very localized power outage. Yeah. Coming from the mausoleum. Right under the mausoleum in yeah. the cemetery. And if you don't believe in any of this, or you have a more rational and, uh, you know, no-nonsense approach, you're probably going to take the line of belief that caretaker Chet Kowalkowski has. I think we mentioned him in part one, maybe, because he was the caretaker there at the mausoleum for 25 years. And he says, it's all a myth. I have worked here for 25 years. I used to patrol the grounds at Halloween. And during the blizzard of 1979, I slept in the mausoleum because I couldn't make it home. And believe me, at night, nothing here moves. So again, I think we may have mentioned him in part one, but he's just like, nothing to see here, folks. I've worked here all my life. I would certainly know if something did. So that tells you about the mausoleum at Resurrection Cemetery, which is a really cool looking building, huge stained glass windows, 5,300 crypts, a source of a power outage. Uh, apparently, Mary has been sighted dancing in there. It's pretty fascinating center of attention in Resurrection Cemetery. Let's move on. 
Now it's time to talk about the Willowbrook Ballroom, which I've been wanting to do for a while. This building is really pretty fascinating, and it's a central source for a lot of the Resurrection Mary stories. Well, it's the other bookend of the uh, story here for Resurrection Mary all along Archer Avenue. Yeah, exactly. And here's the interesting thing about it. It is not the place where Jerry Palis danced with Resurrection Mary. That was the Liberty Grove, which we talked about earlier, which is about a half hour away, about 20 miles, still along Archer Avenue, but much closer to Chicago proper. Yeah. The Willowbrook is further, and I say is, it was. It is. At this point. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) uh, Something was there for a very long time and only recently is gone. Yeah. It burned down on uh, October 28th of 2016 while it was having some work done on the roof, which is kind of sad. The same family had owned it for the last, like, 20 years. Right. Uh, Jedaminus Jod Wallace and his wife, Barut. It's at 8900 Archer Avenue. And uh, one of the things that Mike Brown pointed out, we mentioned that he recently covered Resurrection Mary as well on his show, Pleasing Terrors. And one of the things that he pointed out that we also found in our research was that a dance hall had been on that site since 1921 in one form or another. What's interesting about the Willowbrook Ballroom, though, was that when it opened, it was actually called the O'Henry Ballroom. So the family of John Verderbar, who, according to Wikipedia, was an industrious Austrian immigrant, bought five acres along Archer Avenue. And his plan there, his original plan, was to build a weekend house. But his son, Rudy, was one of these kids that loved to dance back when the ballroom craze that we talked about in part one was going crazy. And he managed to convince his dad that they should build a ballroom on this piece of land. They were like, he's like, that's the perfect location. So the first thing that they built was what they called the O'Henry Park in 1921. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this, about O'Henry, because it's pretty fascinating. When I first thought of it, I'm from North Carolina. Really? Uh, yeah. Really? Well, I mean, you never from, mentioned that. I know. I'm from all over. But okay. when in terms of O'Henry, I always think about William Sidney Porter. That was his pen name. He lived from 1862 to 1910. He's a famous short story writer. And he's from Greensboro, North Carolina, where I went to college and uh, met my wife. And I thought maybe the connection to the O. Henry was related to him. But that's just O. It's the initial O in Henry. And I don't think there's any connection, really. And so with regard to what the original O. Henry was named for, when Rudy Verderbar convinced his dad to build this ballroom, they named it the O. Henry after the O. Henry candy bar, if you can believe that, which is O. H. Henry, not Mm -hmm. O. Henry the author. According to Nestle's site, this is the interesting thing about that, First introduced in 1920 by the Williamson Company of Chicago, many people mistakenly assume O. Henry, exclamation point, was named after the famous ball player Hank Aaron. But the true origin of the name is much more amusing. Now, keep in mind, this is Nestle publicity language, but still. Way back when, there was a little candy shop owned by George Williamson. A young fellow by the name of Henry, who visited this shop on a regular basis, became friendly with the young girls working there. They were soon asking favors of him, clamoring, Oh, Henry, will you do this? And, Oh, Henry, will you do that? So often did Mr. Williamson hear the girls beseeching poor young Henry for help that when he needed a name for a new candy bar, he called it Oh, Henry, and filed a trademark application the following year. So uh, that's the story of the O. Henry candy bar, and that would be apparently the namesake for the original ballroom at the location of the Willowbrook Ballroom site. It was originally called O. Henry Park, and that was an open-air wooden pavilion, all-wooden pavilion, but eventually that pavilion in 1930, actually, was destroyed by a fire. So it completely burned up. Vertebar 
hired 200 carpenters to build a new outdoor dance floor in time for the next Saturday night. And then the remaining 10 weeks, this is from Wikipedia, of O. Henry's 1930 dance season drew even bigger crowds due to massive publicity touting the romantic aspects of dancing under the stars. On May 3rd, 1931, more than 1,700 invited guests and dignitaries danced the first dances in the new O. Henry Ballroom, which had been built at a staggering Great Depression-era cost of $100,000. So this is pretty amazing. So, And we talked about this a little bit in part one, but this is when big band fever was sweeping the country. And John Vertebar's son was the influence, Rudy, to get this built there because he loved to do those dances. And this ballroom was amazing. Our research shows that even during the Second World War, almost 10,000 people were coming to dance there weekly. Right. Well, it had a capacity of 1,100 people on any given night, and they would routinely sell 1,000 tickets almost uh, every you know dance night. So they were meeting their capacity. And even during the Depression, that sum is huge, yeah. astronomical, but it turned out to be a good investment because they had recouped their money and investment. And it was extremely popular, especially during the, the big band era craze. And for people going out to enjoy an evening out on the town dancing, this is a major activity back in the day, especially during the big band era. Listen to some of the acts that they had there. Uh, Count Basie, Artie Shaw, Guy Lombardo. You know, you always hear the Odd Lang Syne. You know, yes. You kids, that, the, the famous old uh, song they play at New Year's Eve at midnight. That's the guy whose version you're probably going to hear. Guy. Uh, yeah, guy's the, the guy. guy. So that, guy's, that, the guy's the guy. Exactly. Got that. Uh, guy's the guy. Gary, <laughs> I did. Thank you. Gary Lewis, Otis Day, the Guess Who and the Village People, Chippendale Dancers. So it's throughout the years have had big acts there that everybody around and probably drawing from Chicago to the north has pulled in for entertainment. So, and not to say that there was a lot of seedy things going on inside the establishment, but the neighborhood around the area was known for... Um, Being a little seedy. Well, <laughs> the extracurricular activities that were apart from the wholesome dancing, let's say. So that whole area saw a lot of action, we could say. Yes. Because there wasn't a whole lot of police presence at the time. That's a quick summary of the history of the ballroom. It was a very popular place, even up until recent times. But unfortunately, on Friday, October 28th of 2016, it caught on fire while work was being done to the roof. I guess there was some issue with the fire trucks, the tanker trucks. Well, the, they had a problem with water pressure being very low, and there was access problems, and the fire department had to put out a call for extra water tanker trucks right. to come by. And of course, by the time they could get them together, smoke was already going through the roof as well as flames, and it was too far gone. They couldn't save it. Yeah. So it's if you go now, even on Google Maps, obviously if you live there, you can drive by, but if you're traveling vicariously like we often have to do... You can uh, go right to where it was and what you'll see on Google Maps anyway. Maybe something new has been built in real time. But at the time that the Google car drove by, it was yeah. a flat concrete slab. It's been cleared. And it's yeah. it's really too bad because it's really a legendary place for the area. And uh, we'd mentioned the owners up to that point. Jedaminas, Jod Wallace, and his wife, uh, Berute, they'd owned that place for 19 years. Yeah. It's just gone now. And yeah. so that all that history, and that was a great thing I'd heard about the ghost tours is that uh, some of the older folks that would go on these tours had tales about being there in the 40s. Yeah. And all throughout that history, having lived all their lives 
in these little towns nearby. So that's all gone. So it's really a tragedy that it's just erased off the map. And who knows what's going to happen to the lot now. But yes, if you go on Google Maps, you'll just see it's been cleared and it's just kind of a flat parking lot now. Well, there's probably something there now. Maybe there is. Who knows? Uh, It could be by this time. Yeah, Yeah, we don't have any reports of that. It was the center of a lot of the Resurrection Mary myths, even though that the Payless story, the famous story, was at the Liberty Grove. There were a lot of people that supposedly saw Resurrection Mary in or around or dancing or sitting by herself even in the Willowbrook Ballroom. So to get a clearer picture of the overview of the layout of the whole area, the Archer Triangle, to the northeast, you have Resurrection Cemetery, major hotspot for seeing Mary. To the southwest, you have the Willowbrook Ballroom in Willow Springs, Illinois. Not Willowbrook. That's that's true. Willowbrook's another uh, community adjacent, close by. Yes. Not the same thing, just to be clear. And you see her all along Archer Avenue walking. She's been spotted all along at different points and at various establishments all along the way. And as we mentioned earlier, a lot of them are really, really haunted. And here's a really, really haunted one close by that used to be called the O. Henry's Roadhouse Building, which has a really, again, colorful, shall we say, illustrious history. Yeah. The first thing that struck me about this was that this is a little building right across the street from the Willowbrook Ballroom, but right across the street also from what was the O. Henry Ballroom. And it's called O. Henry's Roadhouse. So I guess you can just name, you can just steal the name of the place across the street if <laughs> well, you want. There is a connection. Now, this building has been many different establishments throughout the years, most of them having to do with food and drink. At one point, it was Rico D's and Frankie's Pizza Ranch House. And as of today, it is now the Irish Legend Pub and Restaurant. But they claim ownership to it being haunted as well. So the address is 8933 South Archer Avenue in Willow Springs, Illinois, 60480. So again, another building on South Archer Avenue, not too far from Willow Springs Road and South Archer Avenue intersections right there. And it's right in front of a large forest preserve area. So it is in the west of the town of Willow Springs. So I guess if you're on 294, you get off on Willow Springs Road exit. And if you look on Google, it shows it being 279 feet south of the Willowbrook Ballroom on Archer Avenue. This is a fun bit from their own website here about the history from the uh, Irish legend uh, pub and restaurant. Originally built in the early 1920s as O. Henry's Roadhouse, the building has a historic past as a speakeasy with considerable ties to Al Capone and the Prohibition era. As late as the 1950s, Connecting underground tunnels between it and the Willowbrook Ballroom were still in operation. During the Halloween season, the Irish legend is one of the top haunted attractions in Illinois for ghost tours and paranormal investigators. Ooh, that sounds like fun. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it actually looks like it has a really good menu, too. <laughs> a, lot <of> good food, <laughs> a lot of good food and drink, and so a lot of reasons to go check it out. So this building is pretty interesting, and uh, we actually got some really great information about it from the website hauntedhouses.com. But one of the things it talks about is how, to this day, it has this 1920s-style awning over the front door. And the, the front door is at the corner, which is really interesting. It's unusual, yeah. yeah. It's it, Imagine the corner of the building that faces the street. That's the main entrance. And then there's, a, well, nowadays, since it's the uh, Irish legend, there's like a patio out front. It's been really cleaned up and, uh, and fixed up. Yeah. It was kind of it fallen into a lot of disrepair sure. back in the day. But it's, uh, it looks like a great place now. But it, yeah, it has that awning and that really kind of a strange corner entrance to the whole building. Yeah, so it's a four-story building. With, quote, custom-designed features 
not normally found in the average rectangular brick structure. The basement has dirt floors and tunnels, which we're yeah. going to talk about no, in a second. These not tunnels usually are, found in yeah, not usually establishments. Found. Sure. But again, according to hauntedhouses.com, they said, uh, quote, the main floor, second floor, and the attic area have such features as a secret stairway, a hideaway false wall and room, a hideaway false ceiling, and a special stairway. Mm-hmm. And then they go on to say that the builders of this building also owned the ballroom, which was across the street. Now, that would mean that the Vertebars built it, because if they built it, and that would also explain why it was also called O'Henry Roadhouse. Yeah. This leads to a whole different additional dimension to the yeah. Willowbrook Ballroom, which earlier we said, hey, you know, this was the nicer ballroom. But here's the thing about that. What we found out, the more that we looked into this, and we looked into O'Henry's Roadhouse, is that there was, in fact, a speakeasy in the basement of the Willowbrook. And there was gambling and drinking in the speakeasy. And get this, connected by a tunnel under the road to O'Henry's Roadhouse. Well, it just makes walking there pretty easy. Yeah, or, or right. dirty. I don't know what the how furnished the tunnel was, but the point about the Willowbrook is that you had uh, nice, clean, acceptable dancing going on in the main ballroom underneath all the shady stuff where it belongs. Yeah. And of course, you know, during the uh, Prohibition era, people still wanted to drink and they needed a place to do it. Because you weren't making bathtub gin all the time. You were going to, you're getting rot gut from bootleggers and organized criminals at establishments, but it was kept on the hush. So you would go to uh, the basement of these uh, various establishments away from the prying eyes of law enforcement to go have a good time. Well, it does make you wonder where that hundred grand came from to build the ballroom back in the Great Depression. That is a good question. Yeah. Uh, and, and not to cast aspersions no, on no. the vertebrars, but there may have been more going on than just, hey, Dad, instead of a country home, let's build a dance hall. Right, because uh, yeah. <laughs> if it is true that <laughs> both establishments were owned by the same entity, shall we say, yes. or, or people or family, whoever they might be, and you start building in all these kind of secret stairways and tunnels, I mean, that takes a lot of work. Right, and that wasn't the only tunnel. According to hauntedhouses.com, there was another tunnel that just went out into the woods behind the roadhouse, which was likely an escape hatch, essentially, for criminals that didn't want to get caught in the roadhouse if the coppers showed up. And then there was another tunnel that this website says went to a mausoleum. Now, here's the frightening thing about that. The implication there is that if someone died in the roadhouse, or maybe even died at the speakeasy across the street, you could take them under the tunnel, underneath the street. Tunnels, by the way, that were still in operation in the 1950s. Bring them under the street, take them over to the roadhouse, then go out another tunnel to a mausoleum where you could cremate the body. Right. And this is uh, not a mausoleum in the cemetery because it's too far away. We're not sure yeah, where not a this resurrection. mausoleum would be. Right. Yeah. I'm, we're not certain about which mausoleum they're talking about because, again, Resurrection Cemetery and their mausoleum is a long ways away up Archer. Also, being a Catholic cemetery, they didn't really cremate people there. That really didn't become allowed. Now, this is according to catholiccemeterieschicago.org. Cremation really wasn't uh, encouraged, shall we say, until 1963. Sure. However, a thing that gangsters used to do was put people in a king coffin, I'd heard. And this is a high-domed coffin with a lid where you could put more than one person in. Ooh. And That's get, the name of my new band, by the way. <laughs> king Coffin? King Coffin, yeah. But there's a good chance that they were disposing of people 
either out back in the woods or dispatching them there and carting them off to a secret burial with a bunch of other dudes. Yeah. Who weren't approving of that. They just stuffed one or two other people into the same coffin. Well, here's what's interesting, because again, I looked that up uh, wondering, it's like, well, I don't think it means resurrection cemetery, because that's a Catholic cemetery. I would think that they would not have facilities then for cremation. So on the uh, on the website, which I just mentioned, uh, there's a quote here, cremation may be a confusing issue for Catholics. At one time, the church prohibited cremation, but this is no longer the case. In 1963, the Catholic Church lifted its prohibition, forbidding Catholics to choose cremation. Canon 1176 of the 1983 Code of Canon Law states, quote, the church earnestly recommends the pious custom of burying the bodies of the dead be observed. But it does not, however, forbid cremation unless it has been chosen for reasons which are contrary to Christian teaching. Closed quotes. So we're not totally sure, but if the likes of Al Capone and his gangster soldiers are occupying the roadhouse and like to hang out there, I would guess that a couple of other uh, foes, shall we say, met their end there and yeah. got buried in the dirt basement. And, right, which is supposedly yeah. extremely haunted, right? Oh, yeah. Coming back to that tunnel to the mausoleum or the mausoleum. Right, right. We decided, uh, just since we recorded that sentence a few minutes ago, (laughs) we decided to do a little digging, as it were. Oh, Um, pun pun intended. Pun intended. Okay. And try to figure out what that would mean, because there's not a lot of information where we got that from. Would it mean a mausoleum that the gangsters built themselves or in the woods or something? Or because it's not close enough to resurrection for sure. But you found on uh, Google Maps anyway, there's a cemetery, Fairmount, right? That's not too far down the road. Well, if you look on Google Maps, just south of the old O. Henry Roadhouse, which is now the Irish legend pub and restaurant, just south of there, kind of adjacent, is the Fairmont Willow Hills Memorial Park, also known as Fairmont Cemetery Willow Hills Memorial Park. But still, it's a long ways away. I well, mean, it's like you'd have to tunnel a, a long distance to get to any kind of a place where you could dump off uh, dead mobsters. Well, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> if there's a mausoleum there that they were using or appropriating, I was looking at it on Google Maps. It looks to me like you'd have to go about 800 feet, six or 800 feet, depending on where the structure might be. Yeah. It's not unheard of. You know, El Chapo's escape tunnel was a <laughs> mile long. The one with the motorcycle yeah, in it? Yeah, the motorcycle. Yeah, was exactly. a mile long. Yeah. Did you know? I didn't yeah. know it was that long. I just looked that up tonight. And it's 30 meters underground. Now, obviously, right. he's a billionaire, so he could have Mr. Tunnel yeah. Expert come in. It's not fancy. But, uh, mobsters yeah. got money, too. And That's they, true. Who knows? Maybe they had a tunnel to a mausoleum. At the cemetery there. Right. I think it's more likely, though, that the tunnel uh, did go under the road to Willowbrook. Yeah, that was close by. Yeah, if you're running a full-size casino, full-service casino with everything, you know, liquor and uh, entertainment, shall we say, and you need a place to cross between the two without being seen. Again, it's like the more people see you going from one location to the other, they could put two and two together. Yeah. And uh, that's what was happening, and I think it's just an easy way to transport ill-gotten booze from one location to the other. Yeah. And also uh, a tunnel leading out back, because uh, that's easy to do, go right into the woods and run away. Yes. So that's our thinking on uh, the tunnel business, but taking the tunnels and leading back to the O. Henry Roadhouse and the dirt basement is, again, where it starts to get really haunted, and there's some, a couple of famous stories of people actually getting killed there. And the one story that keeps coming back as being probably maybe the most famous of people being killed in the O. Henry Roadhouse building is one that's known to come from the 1920s or 30s. 
And it's about the bartender who fell in love with one of the ladies of the evening who worked there, who was also a girlfriend or at least admired by one of the mobsters. So, of course, that's not going to end well. And as the story goes, as he was coming down the stairs to either drop off supplies, the mobster uh, tackled him or beat the crap out of him, broke his neck and killed the guy. And also beat up the prostitute very badly, most likely beaten to death. And it's thought that both were buried in the dirt basement. Mm. See, not even bothering to take them out through the tunnels out back. So that is, I think, commonly believed that there are bodies buried in the dirt. I'm not sure why no one's really dug that up if it's just, you know, unconfirmed and so long ago that uh, there's no reason to or anybody's going to take the lead on that. But that's the thinking, at least by a lot of paranormal investigators and mediums who've checked out the building. Yeah, sure. That leads us to a gentleman, what we talked about earlier, Edward Shanahan, who is kind of a medium or spiritual listener, you could say, and he goes on these paranormal investigations and uh, a bunch of people have. A team from Ghost Research Society, who we mentioned earlier, has investigated the place and Really, again, very creepy feeling, at least in the basement areas. A feeling of uneasiness is pretty commonly experienced. They say that walking in the dirt area is like the feeling of walking over a newly dug grave. Oh. Uh, one of the members from the Ghost Research Society explained. Yeah, just a really heavy presence and vibe. And then when you take pictures, you'll see lots of orbs and triangular red lights crossing from one side. <laughs> it's your favorite, I know. <laughs> it's like, however, You mean yeah. dust on the lens? Well, I think, let's see uh, how you feel about that after Kent. If yeah. we ever experience any orbs and I get to tease you endlessly about it. Because <laughs> I'm also going to record your reaction. I'm sure. Yeah, that's pretty common. And another descriptor for the dirt floor uh, comes from uh, Shanahan. He's saying that it doesn't feel like dirt. He says it feels like walking on bone. There's a bone feel to it or kind of an oily type of sensation. Hmm. And uh, a shadowy man with an overcoat has been seen going up the stairs by employees. I'm not certain that that's the Irish legend current employees, but previous incarnations of the of the restaurant, as we said before, it's been a few other uh, restaurants. And this is kind of creepy and maybe confirms that earlier story is that people claim to have seen an image in the bathroom mirror of a bloodied woman's pulverized face appearing in the bathroom mirror along with a cold spot in there. So maybe that's the murdered prostitute. Who knows? But that's not something you want to see. It sounds really scary and and unpleasant. Yeah. Remember earlier when we said it was uh, Rico D's and Frankie's Pizza Roadhouse? Yes. Apparently, according to the article here, she, this female entity or a female entity, appeared in front of the owner of Rico D's and had a conversation with him, saying how much he liked the improvements he was doing to the building. The well, that's nice. Okay. Good Yelp review from the underworld. Yeah. Uh, so who knows if that's true or actually recorded, but it does seem that a lot of paranormal teams, these ghost hunting teams, do get a lot of activity recorded in the area. And I'll leave you with this last one here. Apparently an EVP, which is electronic voice phenomenon. You've heard us talk about this before. You take a recording, you ask a question sometimes, and sit for a few minutes and and see if anything answers you. And it might be a faint voice recorded on the medium, either tape or digital. So I guess a question was asked by a member of the Ghost Research Society, quote, did something bad happen to you in this room? And on the recording, a female voice answered, beneath the floor. So there you go. If you believe in that uh, EVP kind of business, um, there's something down there under the dirt. Yeah. That was my place. I'd dig it up. Well, if it were my place, yes, I'd want to get anything 
that was buried under their out. All right, I think it's time for us to play our interview with Adam Selzer, who is the author of the book that we read regarding Resurrection Mary, The Resurrection Mary Files, Chicago's Most Famous Ghost Story. Yeah. And uh, we had an interesting interview with him the other day, so let's go to that. We are very fortunate to have author Adam Selzer with us today. Adam wrote the book, The Resurrection Mary Files, Chicago's Most Famous Ghost Story, among many other books. As you might imagine, we really wanted to read that book for this series, and honestly, I I loved it. I was just laughing out loud at a lot of your <laughs> humor in it, Adam. We're so glad to have you on the show. Um, go ahead, and maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Besides being an author, uh, what else are you up to? Well, I, I got my start in this field about uh, more than 10 years ago now when I got a job as a ghost tour guide here in Chicago. And what really drew me into it was just doing the research to make sure all the stories I was telling were accurate. This was right around the time smartphones came out. <laughs> I was afraid people were going to fact check me on their phones. And the way that they taught me the stories didn't always ring entirely true. So I started spending a lot of time in the newspaper archives, digging through census forms and uh, trying to at least get the history right behind all of these stories. Oh, that's great. Great. That's so important. I mean, not only for just to be telling the right stories, but you're right. It's so easy to get busted these days if you, yeah. if you get something wrong. <laughs> we do a lot of research ourselves. And we find, too, the more research that you do, the more you find researchers contradicting each other. And then you have to oh, look totally. even further to get, yeah, to get the real scoop. Got to get back to the primary sources as much as you can. Well, I wanted to talk to you about your book on Resurrection, Mary. I know it's been a little while since you released that. And uh, you've obviously covered a lot of stuff, especially being a ghost tour guide, which is really, you're, and you're still doing that in Chicago now? Occasionally. I, these days I'm running a lot more cemetery tours. I've got one called Grave Robbing 101 that I do both in Chicago and New York. Oh, cool. Yeah, go to mysterioushicago.com has all of the stuff and uh, also cemeterymixtape.com, which is my new podcast. Oh, nice. How long have you been doing that? I just launched the first few episodes. It's I take stories from different cemeteries all over and then I bring in a musical guest to write a song about whoever I'm talking about. Oh my God, that's such a great idea. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. <laughs> awesome. Cemetery mixtape. Yeah. We'll have to check that out. Um, so... So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, we're doing this series on Resurrection Mary, and honestly, it's so funny. Every time we start something, we think, oh, this one will be okay. We can do this in a single episode or whatever. We're going to just uh, do kind of a lighter one because we're usually, we, you're usually, it's right after we're coming off a three-part series that's just completely consumed our lives for like 45 days. And, yeah. and, and then well, we, you think it's one legend. That's the problem is like, yeah. oh, it's one story that is retold over and over. And in some ways it is. In a lot mm. of ways, we found it, it isn't. What I thought was really fascinating about your approach was, and I've adopted it from you, really, is that there seems to be a difference between the idea of the vanishing hitchhiker and the resurrection Mary stories themselves. Can you talk a little bit about right. that? Well, starting in about the 1940s, folklorists started writing articles about the urban legend of the vanishing hitchhiker. And this was a thing where a guy would pick up a girl or meet her at a dance hall and give offer her a ride home, and then he would disappear out of the car. And usually in the story, he would go to her house and the mother and say, hey, I was just trying to bring your daughter home. I wanted to make sure she got home all right because she vanished on me. And the mother would say, that can't be my daughter. She died in a horrible car wreck five years ago tonight. And then the next day, they would maybe find his sweater on her grave someplace. Sure. Now, 
And then he'd find out it was a girl who died in a car wreck coming home from the same dance hall he'd just been at. Now, those little elements like finding your outerwear on her grave, going to the house, meeting her at a ballroom, turn up in the urban legend all over the country. And usually when people are telling the story of Resurrection Mary, they're really just telling the story of the vanishing hitchhiker. Those elements usually turn up in retellings of the Mary story. But when you really break it down and look at all of the firsthand accounts of Resurrection Mary, what's interesting to me is that most of those elements aren't usually there. Usually it's something much more simple. It's just a guy is driving along, either sees her or sometimes picks up a girl by the side of the road, and then she disappears. We never find out how she died, who she might be the ghost of. Now, she never says what her name is. It could be we've just been calling her Resurrection Mary all this time because it's got a better ring to it than like Resurrection Ethel or Resurrection Beulah. <laughs> <laughs> Which all names from the period, a lot of names from that period would probably be in that realm, right? <laughs> oh, sure. Sure, yeah. Resurrection Gladys, sure. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that because it seems like the only case that seems to have a name mention is Jerry Palis's case, right? Because he yeah. said, yeah, and that's it. Right. Yeah, there's really. Well, Jerry Palis, the guy that they talked to on Unsolved Mysteries, had all of those elements from it. Yeah. But where he kind of loses me is he doesn't remember where he dropped her off. If I gave a dead girl a ride home, I would definitely remember where it was. Yeah. You know, actually, yeah, it's, it happened to me. What? Believe it or not. It's, uh, I actually had it when I was out driving for a lift. I had a vanishing hitchhiker one time. No. <laughs> yeah, well, Please you know, do tell. I'm, I'm yes. skeptical enough to assume that I must have just misunderstood who was getting into the car. But I, I picked up this woman in Rogers Park up on the north side of Chicago. And she got into the car along with this guy who looked exactly like Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I was just driving along. So, oh, so you guys live in Ravenswood. You like it out there? And, and you know, just chatting. We drove right by Rose Hill Cemetery and I give two there, so I was talking about that. I pulled up to the address in Ravenswood, and she got out of the car, and no one else did. Okay. And I said, hey, wasn't there some guy back there with you? She's like, no, I wondered why you kept saying you guys and you too and stuff. And so then I remember we'd driven right by the cemetery, so that's our newest ghost is Rose Hill Pedro. Oh, Rose Hill Pedro. Wow. <laughs> now, and I assume that maybe I just thought the guy was getting into the car and he wasn't. It was dark. I wasn't looking in the rearview mirror much. I was driving ahead. Yeah. But still, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing that guy in the mirror at one point. Oh, wait, wow. wait, and there was another passenger in the back seat with him? The woman I was talking to, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But a, there was another person that I'm pretty sure was in that car. And then when I pulled over to let her out, there was nobody there. She wasn't aware of anyone having been there at all. What time of night was this? Early evening. Uh-huh. Okay. It had gotten dark, and I definitely remember where I took them. With regard to going by Rose Hill, one of the things that you also mentioned in your book, you said, and i uh, quoting here, the original woman in white on Archer Avenue was not in Resurrection Cemetery at all, but rather in St. James of the Sag Cemetery, which was further down Archer the initial yeah, sightings further down archer is a an older a much older cemetery called St. James of the Sag it's the oldest one in the vicinity uh, back in like the 1880s i think it was there was a whole article in the Chicago Tribune about a couple of people who saw a ghostly woman in white appear and disappear in that cemetery okay so this is what it seems like to me and it seems a little bit like what you were kind of implying in the book was there's a simplicity to these Resurrection Mary sightings that seems to operate within the boundaries of The Vanishing Hitchhiker, but it's a lot less specific, and there are some things that are different. Do you think there's something larger going on? I mean, after having done this research and done the ghost tours and having written the book, like, where do you come down now that you've looked into this as much as you have? Well, I let myself have fun with it, but I'm the kind of person who thinks there's always a better explanation than a dead person. 
Okay. But, you know, enough happens, seems to happen. There's, it's like there's something in the water out there on Archer Avenue. There's vanishing hitchhikers all up and down the street. There's Maple Lake, which is supposed to be haunted. People have lots of other stories about St. James of the Sag being haunted. Something there is about that general vicinity that just lends itself to ghost stories, I guess. Have you ever looked at the history of Archer Avenue? Well, I hesitate to make this sound too occult, but like a lot of the diagonal streets in Chicago was an Indian trail originally. Right. That's what we found. Yeah, it's not uncommon with Chicago streets, especially with the diagonals. For the most part, we're set up on a grid system here. Everything is, you know, straight up and down, straight side to side. But there are diagonal streets, and a lot of those did begin as Indian trails. Okay, that's interesting. Now, did you grow up in the Chicago area? I've been here about 15 years. Okay, and that's where you're at now? Yeah. But you're doing tours in New York as well? A little bit, yeah. Okay, okay, cool. What did you think about that talk with uh, Mark Rudnicki? That was a lot of fun. I'm I'm impressed that you found that guy. (laughs) I was surprised, believe me. (laughs) Yeah. Now, they definitely seem to have thought that they... I, do, I definitely don't think they're making that up. The one caveat I would put, without without trying to spoil anybody's fun, is there have been a lot of people over the years who kind of get their jollies by dressing up as Resurrection Mary and wandering around down Archer. Yeah, well, and that was the question that I had, you know, and he seemed to be convinced that if even if they if someone had been yeah, they would have disappeared. They couldn't have gotten away based on the area they were at. But we did find this article based in uh, an event in, let's see, it was I think it was 2012, where the Cook County cops went out there and it was a, a guy dressed in drag with glow stick. Yep. Uh, <laughs> well, this, yeah, actually, uh, that was when the article appeared by yeah, retired it, it, police officer uh, Ray Johnson. But he was talking about a friend of his who was a police officer on patrol in the 1990s. Oh, that was in the 90s. That's yeah, right, the original but, time. Th- but when they caught the guy, he was like, yeah, I've been doing this for about 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> every, yeah. Around every Halloween. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's not the only one either. Yeah. So there's a, you think there's a lot of hoaxers out there. Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of hoaxers out there. Yeah. The trick with Mary is at this point, the story is just so well known that it's hard to believe when somebody tells you, I didn't even know the story. Yeah. Like, yeah, Yeah. you did. Right. Right. (laughs) I mean, I knew it growing up in Des Moines. I mean, I'd seen the Unsolved Mysteries episode. Yeah. Yeah. And and I knew the Vanishing Hitchhiker. It's in a book in a dark, dark room. There's a variation on it. Oh, yeah. You mentioned that in your book. You said that was a a really fun, uh, scary. Yeah. Yeah. Reader. Same guy who did the uh, scary stories to tell in the dark series. Uh, sure. In a dark, dark room was his easy reader, which had a variation on vanishing hitchhiker in it. And the stories continue to pour in. We got an email just today at our contact email from a Joseph Wisniewski. He says, I was listening to your recent podcast on Resurrection Mary and my father, a Chicago cop, used to tell a story about when he picked her up in his squad car one night in the mid-1970s while he was driving home. He saw this girl. It was cold out, so being a good cop, he pulled over and basically told her he wasn't going to let her walk home in that kind of weather with so little on. She obliged and hopped in his squad car. She gave him an address, and as he was about to drop her off, she faded away. He goes on to say, My dad didn't frighten easy, but it shook him for the rest of his life, which incidentally ended a few years after that. Uh, huh. That just came in to us. That was this morning, right? Yeah, First, it was just, uh, this, just this morning. And I wish I had more information about the address because I always love that element of these stories is that right. there's there's a physical <laughs> anchor to this and that there's an actual place and that it ties in with that you go visit it the next day. And it's like, oh, that was on the anniversary of her death uh, one year ago or several years ago. But that's one thing you can point to a story that's solid, at least. You know, you can check that yeah. out. And I wonder if that's, um, there is a similar one. There was a thing, a patrolman named Pat Homa in 1976. Yes. Yeah, he's in your book, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the ones I was able to dig up. Well, oh, that's the one that connects to the bars, to the yeah. gate. 
So yeah, so what's your take on that, on the gate? You know, I had a woman at a book signing come up to me some years back and tell me that uh, she introduced herself as the daughter of the guy who backed his truck into the gates. Yeah, right. Which is how they got banged up. Okay. <laughs> and she was pretty intent on that's, oh, that's oh, what yeah. happened. Oh, yeah, she said the cemetery, they put on a public scowly face about it to discourage people. Behind the scenes, they thought it was hilarious. Right. And then so eventually they swapped them out, though, right? Because so many people yeah, were coming Yeah, eventually they just kind of got tired of dealing with it. And so you think that that's what happened there, period. Yeah, I, I think it was just a construction accident. I've, I've never known ghosts to bend bars around before. Right. What is your total, like, final assessment of it? My final assessment is I assume it's probably just folklore that kind of grows in people people's minds. But at the same time, I let myself have fun with it now and then. Yeah. Do you have other like really poignant tales from the area that you feel are as significant as Resurrection Mary? I mean, obviously she's famous, especially because of Richard T. Crow, I imagine. Yeah, he certainly helped. Really pushing it out there. I mean, but are there other stories that are a little bit lesser known, but that seem to have a lot of incidents in the area? You mean right around Archer Avenue or yeah. around Chicago? Well, both Archer or Chicago. I mean, what's how about this Mothman situation? What do you think about that? <laughs> Um, I haven't looked into that too much, but I I think somebody found out that all of the original sightings were coming from the same IP address. Oh, really? Or something. Hmm. Yeah, it's something like, it's a shame. Well, we never came up with a good name for it. I mean, there's already a Mothman. I wanted like something more Chicago specific. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like a Chance the Flapper or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. What about other ghost stories that you feel like should be getting more attention maybe? Oh, there's so many of them. Let me just go through the table of contents in my book. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People used to talk about Lincoln Park being haunted all the time and that just kind of faded out over the years. Maple Lake right over near there. Well, one of the candidates for uh, who the real ghost of Mary is is a girl named Anna Norcus. Yes. And, you know, a friend of mine got a copy of the uh, funeral homes records that included her funeral. And if you flip through around it, it's just like so many of them are like teenagers who drowned in Maple Lake. It's like every other page is a teenager and cause of death is drowned in Maple Lake. Is that how Anna died? Uh, no, she died in a car wreck. That's yeah. right. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. she was only like twelve too, right? She Wasn't... was twelve. Yeah. yeah. Well, people like to say it was the day before her thirteenth birthday. It was like six weeks. Yeah. 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 Right. And she's in the wrong cemetery too. Right. 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 So you well, know, she's got as good a right to be a ghost as anybody else. But most of the backstory to connect her to Resurrection Mary just doesn't check out. Right. Doesn't right. line up. Well, let me ask you this: one thing that we discovered as we're doing our research, and it kind of unfolded, or you start to paint this picture in your head because you know we're not from the area. I visited Chicago several times. I think Scott has as well. Yeah. But we never made it that far to the Southwest. And what we learned is that you start reading about all the other establishments along Archer Avenue and in the vicinity, in that Archer Triangle, as I think some of the locals call it. And every place along there, Ashbury Coffee House, you know, mm. Fairmont Cemetery, anchoring it on the other end. And mm. it was at Jen's, uh, there's a like a bed and breakfast there. All these places seem to be haunted. They all seem to have their own ghost stories, along with the Irish legend now, which was the O. Henry Roadhouse at one point. Which was point. across from the Willowbrook, yeah. Right, or and, is, you know, yeah. that's on the front of their webpage that, you know, there was underground tunnels leading to the cemetery, perhaps, one out to the back, seen a lot of violence during the speakeasy days, and it has its own ghost stories. So I guess the question is, is this one of the most haunted areas in Chicago? Yeah, it certainly seems to be. 
it's one of a number of areas around Chicago where I just end up finding so many things clustered around one area. That's that's one of the big ones. There's also some up in the Lincoln Park area that just seem to have a lot, quite a lot around the Loop and River North area. Okay. Well, we'll have to check out Maple Lake now. Yeah, um, no, it's a great name. But it's, it's you know, <laughs> we always wonder about that because, you know, if you if you take this a step further and, and go into the haunted areas, portals and all that kind of stuff, Skinwalker Ranch, where there's hot spots of activity, this definitely seems to be a corridor, at least, you know, along this one avenue, as you said, in, in being kind of diagonal. Yeah. There does seem to be a lot of activity here. And, and then, yeah. you know, then the one thing I, you know, kind of uh, rationalize is like, well, what cemetery doesn't have its own ghost stories? Right. Because each one of these does. Is something about Archer. It's a very dark area out there. I feel like when you go driving down there at night, you start going through a lot of places where it's just the woods around you. There aren't any street lights. Maple Lake in particular, I'm guessing based on all the teenagers who died there, I'm guessing it's a place where teenagers went out to get drunk. Right. Yeah. And it's the same thing with like Bachelors Grove Cemetery out in the woods, a little further west and further south. It's a place where teenagers used to sneak in to get high all the time. Yeah. And, you know, if, if they didn't start seeing ghosts, they should go consult their dealer and right. get their money back. <laughs> you know? right. It's kind of a trick with a lot of haunted locations, I find, where a lot of the stories, when you trace it back to the primary source, you find the original witnesses. So we were super wasted this one night. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is also when you've got a, a good chance of accidentally killing yourself as well. Right. Right. So spooky places where people get wasted and sometimes die. It's just natural they'd said be said to be haunted after a while. Right, right. That's a good point. We had a listener named Dan who sent us an email and he's from the area, grew up in the suburb of Burr Ridge right at the edge of Archer Avenue. And he had kind of an interesting take on this. Maybe you, you might know about. There was an area which is kind of in the woods there that he said, you know, it was kind of a dare, like he said, it, the Argonne National Laboratory being a place out there, which he described a lot like being from Stranger Things. Yeah. This weird government laboratory uh, that was really spooky with fences around it. And it was a dare to kind of go up there as kids or see how long you could last out there without getting freaked out and running away. So wondering if you had ever heard of that. No, nah, I haven't heard too much about okay. that. I know you're pretty close to the airport out there, though. You know, he was making a connection, of course, to uh, Montauk and uh, some of these other weird facilities that not only have weird secret government stuff going on, but they seem to be creepy, freaky places it's in and of themselves. Yeah, classic, classic set, right. Things, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I haven't heard about that particular one. That's the kind of one when, you, when people tell you stories about stuff like that, next thing you know, they're telling you about the Knights Templar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly might do that. That's, that's not, that could be in our wheelhouse as well. So uh, what's your latest book? What's the stuff you've got out more recently? The most recent one was called H.H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil. And that was... Um, massive biography that I did of the devil in the white city guy trying to trace all of that stuff back to primary sources. Oh, wow. Right, right. That's a subject we often get to ask to cover. I mean, it's, it kind of leads more into grotesque true crime. Not as grotesque as people think. Really? Right. I mean, the guy killed nine or 10 people for sure, but it, the, the whole thing about torture equipment doesn't turn up in any written account until like 50 years after the fact. Oh, that's interesting. Uh -huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Because yeah, everybody focuses on the, you know, the room is filled with acid. Yeah, and, those uh, weren't there. 
Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, now that sounds like a that sounds and, like a good and book. you can trace how the stories grew if you read really just about everything over the years. You can trace where they got the idea that this existed and where how it kind of entered into the pop vernacular. But yeah, he was a swindler first and foremost. He did kill a number of people, but a lot of the stories about the castle come from overeager reporters and even more overeager police officers. Oh, interesting. Right. But yeah, we found that ourselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, somebody even in jest especially back then around that time, we'll say something in an earshot of a reporter who's of course waiting for a juicy headline of some kind. Yeah. And then they just run with it. And then that sticks, right. you know? Yeah. And well, you, you know, the reporters at the time were really pretty good about when a story didn't check out or when one of their theories got shot down, they would publish that the, you know, when yeah. they, when a guy said that he was buying dead bodies from homes to turn into skeletons to sell to the medical schools, all the papers around the country published that uh, when it turned out that this was just some guy who would say whatever the cops told him to, if they poured enough whiskey down his throat, uh, the Chicago papers covered that a lot of the rest of them just didn't cover that part of it. Aha, that's interesting. Uh, not meant to be any spoilers, although it's an old story. Any idea what happened to the guy? The skeleton guy? H.H. Holmes. They hanged him. Okay, so they did catch up with him. I, I thought uh, I had read earlier he was on the run for a uh, he while. Wa- he was for a while, but they caught him. They were able to convict him of one murder and hanged him. Now, they did exhume the body last year. Ah, uh, the History Channel used some of my research, uh, even though I always said it was definitely him in there. They managed to get permission from a judge to exhume the body. And you can actually match. There was a dental cast that was taken and published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. You can match it up to the skull they dug up and see very clearly it's the same teeth. Ah, fascinating. Interesting, yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough, Adam, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. I greatly enjoyed your book. I think our listeners should uh, pick it up as well as your latest work on H.H. Holmes, which I'm definitely going to check out. I hope so, yeah. Yeah, man. And just thank you for taking the time to uh, come on with us today. Anytime you got a Chicago story, I'm happy to help out. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And if you uh, come out to L.A., look us up. We'll take you out for a beer or something. We'll do, sure. All right. Take care. All right, man. Talk All to right, you. Thanks, lot. Adam. All right. Bye. Bye. Well, that was uh, interesting. And I think the thing that stood out to me most at the top of the interview was that he met his own vanishing hitchhiker. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) when you talk to him, though, he's very level-headed. He's very rational, very objective, and with a dose of healthy skepticism about how he approaches these stories, especially when he goes to write about them, you know, keeping an an even keel. But here, he's not above uh, admitting that he had something very strange happen to him. Which uh, had a funny ring to it, Rose Hill Pedro. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that, hey, that's what he looks like. That's the guy. Yeah. What I loved about that story as well is there was somebody else there with him, the other passenger. Yeah. Who didn't see anything. Yeah. It's not like, oh, yeah, he also vanished. Well, that falls <laughs> in the category that we uh, recently learned the name of a few episodes ago, a personal experience. That's right. Yeah. He had a, uh, well. He had an experience that he cannot verify with an outside source, even though a witness was present or right. a potential witness was present. Right. But it was something that he experienced. Yeah. And again, another personal experience story we'll hear, which was experienced by two people. This was interesting because, you know, you can always doubt yourself. It's like, well, maybe I didn't see somebody get into the car, but I swear that's what it seemed like, you know, yeah. when the other person was getting in, another person got in. So I had two passengers, but the other person didn't. So you always have that doubt in your mind. I think some of these stories that we'll hear, though, coming up, there is no doubt in the experiencer's mind that this person was, at least for a moment, real. Yeah, and I also thought his take on the gates, he's pretty well and truly convinced that just a truck backed into the gate of the cemetery. And, you know, we didn't get into the the depth of that story in this part of the series. We are yeah. going to open with it next week. 
the long and short of it is there were some handprints in these bars in the gate that were supposedly left there by Resurrection Mary, like burned into the gate yeah. bars and bent, and you could actually see finger holds on them. Well, and everyone's... Now, <laughs> he's not there. He's not there on that. <laughs> no. But we have a lot more about that story that we want to share. You'll have to decide for yourselves, uh, dear listener, but people always ask for proof. And I'll ask them, well, what do you consider proof? What would be proof to you? And we always wonder, like, is it a photo? Is it video, audio? No, none of that will stand up because all of that can be faked. To me, the only way you would get to believe something like that is through the personal experience, being there and seeing it with your own eyes. And even then, you might deny it. You might claim, uh, well, I was seeing things. My mind was playing tricks on me. I was really tired. I was on cold medicine. Whatever your excuse is, you can still deny it. But I think that's the strongest thing we have when it comes to ghosts. But what if you don't have the personal experience? What's the next best maybe piece of evidence or proof that the supernatural exists? Well, from a legal standpoint, how about fingerprints? That's going to wrap up part two of our series on Resurrection Mary. Special thanks, of course, to both Mark Rudnicki and Adam Selzer for joining us tonight. We'll be back next week with a last look at Mary and a deeper look at other vanishing hitchhikers, including a guest who had an unexplained encounter for which he was the hitchhiker. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on at Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. Remember. I'm Chris Perez. When you can't look on the bright side. And I give permission to astonishing legends. I'll sit with you in the dark. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell. And our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>